Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to blacktalkradionetwork.com, helping you filter through the noise. Real talk, black talk. The internet is full of half-truths and all-out lies. We've all seen them, and many people on social media complaining about it. Here's your chance to show and prove. WorldAfropedia.com is a black-owned and operated encyclopedia. There are several thousand articles, but we need help. We can't uncover all the truth ourselves. So please, join us and become a writer, editor, or blogger for WorldAfropedia.com today. Every little bit counts. We owe it to the future generations to put the truth out there. Visit WorldAfropedia.com, the African-centered encyclopedia, a global database of African knowledge for the purpose of bringing about global African wisdom and understanding. WorldAfropedia.com. Oh, just one moment. Uh, you know, uh, there's a lovely, sad Negro spiritual. <coughs> Ivy's brother just... Are you all right? Anyway, Ivy's brother used to sing this when he came in from the tobacco fields. Mama, is Master going to sell us tomorrow? Yes, yes, yes. Mama, is Master going to sell us tomorrow? Yes, 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 Mama. Is Massa going to sell me to Mama? Yes, yes. Oh, watch and pray. Now, there's a second verse. If you'd like to join in the chorus. Mama, is Massa going to sell us in June? Context of white supremacy. Gus T. Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Friday, January 15th, 2016. So I have been told uh, the audio segment at the beginning of the program from the smash hit bringing down the house Steve Martin Queen Latifah huge hit I'm sure folks uh, remember one of the uh, memorable moments racist entertainment I uh, thought that would be fitting to pick up where we left off last week in Edward Baptist's the half has never been told uh, really in my opinion we kind of ended where he was talking about 
Negro spirituals and uh, the entertainment that went on on the plantations and how white people felt about all this. Importantly, he talked about how uh, that became blackface minstrel shows and and really mimicking, copying, imitating what was happening uh, in terms of Negro entertainment on the plantation. That became the foundation of American cinema, American amusement, talking about uh, all the way up to, to Birth of a Nation later on in the early 20th century. But I thought that was a great way to begin the program, just showing the continuity, uh, mocking the torture, terror of black people on into the 21st century. Uh, with that, we are in Chapter Five, chapter five. This week we will hit the halfway point uh, for the half has never been told. Uh, this is still in the section tongues, and there's going to be quite a bit more to come uh, dealing with the role of music, entertainment, and how that played out on the plantations. With that, we will get started. Of course, Dixie in the background, another remnant from that period of time. Context of white supremacy. Edward Baptist. The half has never been told. Audio segment number one. Charles Ball had experienced the full array of devastations practiced upon his body and his life by the new kind of slavery growing on the South's frontiers. He contemplated the choice that almost swallowed up Lucy Thurston, whose first few weeks in the Louisiana field had been the death in life of the zombie. Like Lucy, Ball chose otherwise. Perhaps his survival, and perhaps Thurston's as well, were miracles. Then again, there were times when to those who struggled on, death seemed more merciful than these resurrections. But just as Lucy ended up singing with the men in the fields on Friday, on a Saturday night in 1805, Charles Ball danced until dawn in the yard between the slave cabins. Several men took turns playing the banjo. Everyone sang. The older people soon grew too tired to dance, but they still beat rhythms with their hands. When the music slowed to a pause, they told stories of Africa. A man cannot well be miserable when he sees everyone about him immersed in pleasure, Ball remembered. I forgot for the time all the subjects of grief that were stored in my memory, all the acts of wrong that had been perpetrated against me. Singing in the circle was teaching the people on a thousand congarees to speak in one tongue, despite their divergent origins. Beneath all their particular interests lay the fact that they were all slaves, all faced by a group that exploited them together. On fundamental questions that divided black and white, the circle gave its participants practice in acting and thinking together. This did not mean that they would always get along harmoniously, that they would have no conflicts, that the circle was never broken by competition, or that no one would ever seek his or her own advantage by siding with the masters in a way that other enslaved people thought betrayed their own values. But Saturday night promoted survival, and not just the survival of one individual. What tongues sang, how they called out with joy, longing, or competition as bodies shifted in dance, all these sounds and movements drew together the bonds that would help the group to help its members. It taught most enslaved migrants that, despite all their differences and conflicts, 
They needed each other if they were to survive. And already they were doing more than surviving together. They were shaping new ideas, new analyses of the world and how it worked, which would in turn shape future actions. Ball himself acted, sooner rather than later. As soon as he settled in a bit at Congaree, in fact, he was given by Wade Hampton to the planter's recently married daughter. She and her husband deployed Ball on a new slave labor camp deep in the woods of frontier Georgia. Within a year, he became a driver, charged with forcing others to keep the pace. Ball did so well at this that by the summer of 1808, his owner's brother-in-law began to feel he was getting too much confidence. They beat him severely. Ball resolved that the time had come to leave. Enslaved migrants ran away all the time, hiding in the woods to escape violence. The number, not surprisingly, peaked during cotton-picking season. But most of them eventually came back to the slave labor camp. Slave patrols caught them. Random whites caught them. Other slaves betrayed them. Most of them didn't know the way back to wherever they had come from. And in between stood thousands of armed white people who would not be their friends. As for the free states, they were even farther away. The number of enslaved migrants who made it from the depths of the cotton and sugar frontiers all the way to the free states probably numbered under a thousand during all the years of slavery. That amounts to one-tenth of one percent of all forced migrants. Most of those who did make it got away by hiding on steamboats, ocean-going ships, and later on railways. In Georgia, Ball was 600 miles by foot from Maryland's Calvert County. He decided to try anyway. In early August, he packed a small bag with food, flint, and tinder. He tied his faithful dog, who he feared might give away a hiding place, to a tree near the cabins of the labor camp. He fed his pet one last time and set off north through the woods. Night after night, Ball walked, sometimes wandering in circles until he could find a road or get his bearings from Polaris through the ragged clouds. By day, he hid in the woods. He stole ripe corn from the fields. When October came, he was still only at Columbia, South Carolina. And his memory told him that it had taken him more than a month on the high roads coming south there from Maryland. There were many miles still to go. Ball crept across North Carolina in the dark. Each morning, the cold sunrise found him looking for groves of evergreen holly where he could shiver in safety through the day. A nighttime attempt to ford the frigid Roanoke River turned into a disaster. It was deeper and swifter than he remembered, and he had to swim for it. He made it to the other shore, but almost went into hypothermic shock before he could get a fire going. But now Ball was in Virginia. One day north of Richmond, a white man spotted him hiding near the high road. Within a few hours, Ball was locked in the Caroline County Jail. The normal procedure was to try to ascertain where the runaway had come from and then advertise him or her in newspapers likely to be read there. Ball refused to say who he was, and no one there recognized him. He had already come farther than any of the jailers would have believed. After 39 days in jail, in early February 1809, Ball broke out of the flimsy building and headed northeast. At the Potomac, he found a small boat tied up on the shore. Rowing himself across, Ball hiked to Patuxent and did the same thing. At one in the morning, he reached the door of his wife's cabin. Ball stood there in shock. Perhaps he'd been replaced. Finally, he summoned the courage to knock and heard his wife respond. Who's there? He said. Charles, 
and she said, Who is this that speaks like my husband? Like, but not the same, for his tongue sounded different now. 6. Breath 1824-1835 The cold stars of the southern night glittered high above the quarters in the Tennessee cotton belt. Three hundred miles away, a man followed a northbound path by their light. Down here, the adults and youths were sitting on three log benches, pulled into a triangle around a fire that burned low. The younger children slept in the cabins, but there weren't many of them. Most of the young people were big enough to work all day. They'd been sold here away from their parents. So who would send them to bed? And there were things being said that they needed to hear, and there were also things they needed to tell. Iron spoons clanked on tin cups of cornmeal mush and ration salt pork. It was almost contradictory that low laughs, punctuated rumbling speech, meant that what the speaker said wasn't funny. That night there were many grim chuckles. Now a girl's voice, tired from the field, began to tell a story that a child named Hetty Mitchell, not born, not even thought of yet, would eventually hear. This was the night when Hetty's one-day-to-be mother first told her own tale, how she had been stole from her parents in South Carolina. How the last sight anyone on the home place saw of her was a glimpse of a child getting bundled into a covered wagon. One hundred years later, Hetty herself would be telling the tale that got her mother to Tennessee. This night, the words her future mother spoke began to weave their way into the story of everyone else on the bench, of everybody scattered under the southern stars across ten thousand clearings like this one. If one could sit there with them, one would learn that as soon as forced migrants could understand each other's tongues, they tried to make sense of the destruction and chaos inflicted upon them. One would also hear them remembering the lost, hoping, too, that the lost would also not forget them. For they were all lost. And one would notice another thing, the same phrases again and again. I saw them travel in groups. They looked like cattle. They was taking them, driving them, just like a pack of mules. I seen people handcuffed together and drove along the Williamsburg Road like cattle. They was bought to be took south. The stories of those who endured coffle, block, and whipping machine were as like to each other as two links forged as part of the same iron chain. But enslaved people also forged their own links. They borrowed catchphrases that resonated with their own or their relatives' experiences. My mother and daddy done told me all about it. Sold just like cows, honey, right off the block. Every teller owned a piece of this story, for the experiences and forces that the words tried to describe had shaped every teller's life. They did far better than professional historians have done at identifying the common ways that forced migration shaped their lives and that of the United States. Indeed, the storytellers concluded that forced migration was slavery's truest measure. Year after year, night after night, survivors talked and listened, creating a vast oral history that was also an argument about the nature of slavery. One million tongues were providing anyone willing to listen with an explanation for why these things had happened to them, and who was to blame. Their talking assembled them, at least for the time of the storytelling, into one body that breathed the vast and devastating common experience of slavery's expansion. For the way that enslaved migrants explained their common situation helped them to unite, 
cementing a baseline of solidarity that was fundamental to African-American survival. The stories that enslaved migrants whispered on the night air would also, when carried north on the tongues of intrepid messengers like Charles Ball, be powerful enough to breathe fire into the disparate elements of anti-slave expansion sentiment in the free states. One day, enslaved people's own acts might thus bring allies to their beleaguered cause. Yet whether the potential emergence of allies for tough but disarmed survivors could derail the most kinetically forceful economic phenomenon in the 19th century world, the growth of cotton production and its transformation into textiles, was an open question that seemed to be closing in the wrong direction. For even as the disparate elements of enslaved African-American populations on slavery's frontier knitted together the words of a new common cultural tongue into a story, the powers of their world were growing even more menacing. There was no new day on the horizon on November 5, 1829, when Granville Sharp Pierce stood in the New Orleans office of public notary William Boswell. Pierce was dealing in much more tangible transactions and effects than were the people who sat around fires talking. He was at the office to file two specific documents. Together, these two pieces of paper left a trail that maps all we know about Ellen, the short, 17-year-old woman whose name was on the documents Pierce handed to Boswell. The first document was a deed. It recorded his sale of Ellen to Barthélemy Bonny. In other states, slave sellers and buyers retained deeds of sale themselves, and most of those papers did not survive the passing years. Louisiana's Napoleonic Legal Code, however, required notaries to keep a record of every local slave trade. Almost all the New Orleans ledger books have survived, and they are now stored in the city's notarial archives on the fifth floor of the Amico building on Poitras Street. Pierce's transaction helped to show how, even as Hetty's mother told her story, her story itself and Ellen's too was changing from the one Charles Ball or Rachel would have told. For the ways in which the enslaved were stolen and driven were changing. Through the 1820s, building on the ad hoc speculations of Georgia men and Louisiana entrepreneurs, an emergent crop of professional slave traders knotted together an innovative trading system that would supply even more enslaved people to slavery's frontier and help keep slaveholding profitable everywhere. The new professionals had created a true national slave market, lungs to bring in huge gulps of oxygen of slave labor into the southwestern region, where enslavers were willing to spend the most for hands. Those lungs would keep inhaling until the end of the Civil War. The documents accumulated by Louisiana notaries helped give a clear picture of how the trade worked, in New Orleans and elsewhere, by the time Ellen got there in 1829. From 1804 to 1862, the 135,000 recorded New Orleans notarial sales map a fascinating overall profile of the changing price patterns of the slave trade at its pivot point, its biggest market. For instance, in 1820, the average price of a male hand between 21 and 38 years of age had been $875. In 1824, that average had fallen to $498. By 1829, prices had risen again, to an average of $596. In fact, if we compare slave prices to cotton prices, multiplied by the output of cotton per enslaved person, an output that was, as we know, rising under the influence of the whipping machine, we can see that by the 1820s, 
the price of slaves had begun to track closely with the revenue generated by the average cotton hand. Demand from cotton state slave buyers increased when the product of two factors multiplied together, the number of pounds picked times the price per pound, was high. But the legal documents of New Orleans allow us to take an even more accurate measure of the new trader's creation, and they show that something else was happening in the 1820s. Whereas most 1815 to 1819 sales there had been made by entrepreneurs who traded in other goods as well, now specialized slave traders began to nominate the notarial records. These professional traders dramatically increased the scale of the forced migration of people. And when we combine the information from the first document that Boswell recorded, the deed or act of sale, which showed that Pierce was selling Ellen to Barthélemy Bonny of Orleans Parish for $420, with a second one, we can see that in the 1820s, enslavers had also come as close to fully monetizing human bodies and lives as any set of capitalists have ever done. Starting in the fall of 1829, buyers and sellers also had to comply with a new Louisiana law that required everyone who imported an out-of-state slave for sale to create and file a certificate of good character, which had to be witnessed by two property owners from the slave's home county. Louisiana state legislatures were worried that the rapidly expanding trade between slavery's oldest states to slavery's newest ones was bringing in rebellious troublemakers, this certificate had to list the names of the original seller and purchaser, the sale site, and a general description of the person sold, name, age, sex, color, height. So we can see from the certificate Pierce filed with Boswell that Pierce bought Ellen in Davidson County, Tennessee, Nashville, on the 22nd of September from Garrison Lanier. Lanier was a Davidson County resident who owned six slaves before selling Ellen. The law was in force until late 1831, and the trade concentrated mainly in the post-malaria months of late November to April. So the certificates give us two selling seasons. In those two seasons, more than 4,200 certificates of good character entered the books of 13 different New Orleans notaries. Add them all up, sort them, test them with statistical software, and they yield a census that is unique in the records of the internal slave trade in the United States. Such a database allows us to see, for these two years, precisely whom the slave trade pulled to the Mississippi's mouth, where they came from, and who had sold them back in the old states. This knowledge can shed new light on how professional slave traders replaced the multitasking entrepreneurs of the 1810s. The data from the notarial records can also contextualize the experiences of the people who were inside the slave trade, helping us to see what shaped the stories Ellen told when she got to Barthélemy Bonny's slave labor camp. To begin with, the enslaved people sold in New Orleans in 1829 to 1831 by slave traders like Pierce were overwhelmingly from the older states that constituted the heart of slavery and the African-descended population in the United States. In 1815 to 1819, 33% of the enslaved sold in New Orleans had come from the Chesapeake and the Carolinas. Now, more than one-third of all the certificates were issued in one state, Virginia, which one of its natives, Lewis Hughes, called the mother of slavery. When I was placed upon the block, Hughes remembered, a Mr. McGee came up and felt of me and asked me what I could do. 
You look like a right smart nigger, said he. Virginia always produces good darkies. In fact, more than two-thirds of the people transported to New Orleans between July 1829 and the end of 1831 came from the three states of North Carolina, Virginia, and Maryland. The combined share for North Carolina and the Chesapeake, the oldest districts of slavery in the United States, amounts to 3,009, or 77% of the total. In counties along the James, the Roanoke, and the Potomac, African grandparents, great-grandparents, and even further back parents had, over the decades and centuries since they had survived the Atlantic slave trade, created the traditions and networks that enabled enslaved families to survive. They had even thrived, living longer and raising more of their own babies to healthy adulthood. But by the 1820s, enslavers had been pulling up stakes and heading southwest across the mountains to places where money could be made for three decades. As of 1850, 388,000 whites born in Virginia would live in other states. Human property, generated by enslaved people's own commitment to raising and protecting children, often represented for the enslavers who remained in the Southeast their only real wealth. Only markets in Georgia or Louisiana could render those slaves as liquid value. And by 1829, a new set of entrepreneurs was building on the earlier development of market institutions in New Orleans to create a powerful and efficient trade that unlocked the monetary value stored in the family bonds that enslaved people had built so richly in the Chesapeake and Carolinas. As early as the mid-1820s, people who visited the Mississippi Valley had been noticing this new breed of entrepreneurs. They were young men who were getting rich fast by specializing in one commodity, humans. Buying masses of enslaved people for low prices in Virginia and Maryland, these young men thrust them into the prison house for safekeeping, drove their enslaved purchases handcuffed through the country like cattle, and boated them down the rivers and around the Cape of Florida to New Orleans or elsewhere to the southwest. The new entrepreneurs were efficiently connecting stored wealth to markets by handling the entire middle portion of the forced migration process. And African Americans gave them a new name. Robert Falls heard it from his mother, who told him that her enslaver sold her to the slave speculators, who drove her and the rest of the coffle like a pack of mules to the market. They went through North Carolina, where Falls later said she began to have fits. You see, they had sold her away from her baby. One of the most famous speculators, Austin Wolfock of Baltimore, created a number of innovations that produced increasingly efficient market connections between the old states and the slave frontier. He set up branches of his firm in both selling and buying areas, allowing his trading activities to run more or less continuously. In districts ripe with viable slaves, such as Maryland's Eastern Shore, Austin Wolfock and his brother John used advertisements to generate a groundswell of brand recognition. Soon competitors did the same, such as Samuel Reynolds, who came to Maryland's Eastern Shore in 1831 and placed an ad in the Easton Republican Star. It proclaimed that he wouldn't leave the Easton Hotel until he bought 100 Negroes from the age of 12 to 25 years, for which he will give higher prices than any real purchaser that is now in the market. Young Frederick Douglass, who was sent back from Baltimore, where he had secretly learned to read, to rural Talbot County, Easton was the county seat, remember that for those who didn't read the newspapers, 
Wolfuck's employees tacked up flaming handbills printed in loud typefaces. Headed cash for Negroes. The Wolfuck's, who bought Jacob Green's mother, paid cash. But they refused to haggle, Green recalled. They typically offered a standard rate for individuals of a particular age and sex. Just to the north of Talbot County was Kent County, another decayed rural area whose enslavers profited more from selling people than they did from selling tobacco. Thousands of whites left Kent County for greener pastures. So did African Americans, such as nine-year-old Henry Highland Garnet, who escaped to Pennsylvania with his parents in 1824. Garnet grew up to become an advocate of African American self-determination, famous for his speeches like his 1842 Address to the Slaves, which called for violent revolt. But most of the African Americans who left Kent County went south with speculators, not north to freedom. In 1829 through 1831, the certificates from New Orleans show slave traders bought 100 slaves in Kent County and took them to Louisiana. Kent County at the time had about 10,000 people, 3,000 of whom were enslaved. So 100 sales equaled more than 3% of the enslaved. Look even closer. 97 of the Kent County slaves sold in New Orleans were between the ages of 10 and 30, and 79 were between 14 and 23, the age group that held most of those who were sold as hands. Look with the eyes of Methodist minister and Kent County native John Dixon Long. He saw the result of these sales at the water's edge where those to be transported were to be loaded onto a ferry. A crowd of mothers, fathers, and friends waited to say goodbye to one out of every ten young men and women in the community. Armed white men kept the two crowds apart, for although a coffle chain already bound the men and boys, everyone was a potential escape threat. Not even the women were allowed into the bushes. I have seen the men at the ferry, Long remembered under the necessity of violating the decency of nature before the women, not being permitted to retire. They did the best they could, the opposite sex turning away in kindness. Then the barge grounded on the sand, and the time came to say goodbye. Farewell, mother. Farewell, child. Farewell, John. Farewell, Bill. This scene was replayed at countless southeastern riversides and canal edges, crossroads, and eventually railroad depots every year, up until the Civil War. In the 1820s, migrating enslavers and new traders moved approximately 35,000 enslaved people from Maryland and the District of Columbia, 76,000 from Virginia, and 20,000 from North Carolina. And that was only the beginning. Speculators repeatedly tapped areas that had large enslaved populations and anemic cash crop possibilities, skimming off the cream of uncounted parents' lives young men and women, boys and girls. Of the enslaved children aged 10 and under in Virginia in 1820, only three of every four who lived would still be in Virginia 10 years later. The figures for Maryland, Delaware, and North Carolina were all similar. Charles Ball had feared the Georgia men, but beginning in the 1820s, the possibility of being sold to the Southwestern interests increased dramatically. In a single year, a given person's risk might be lower than the 10% chance faced by young people in Kent County. But the cumulative risk of being sold at some point in the course of the three decades of one's saleable years was close to 50% for each individual. 
These odds also meant that many enslaved people experienced something like what Moses Grandy endured. Enslaved in eastern North Carolina during the 1820s, he watched as his wife, sister, and six children were all sold to the interstate trade. All in all, the nonstop siphoning off stopped the demographic growth of Virginia's slave population in its tracks between 1820 and 1860. The new slave trade enabled eastern slaveholders to cash in potential wealth on distant markets. Some used the new trade to measure out their slave forces by the spoonful to the speculators, which allowed indebted planters to hold off creditors and stay in the southeast. Other enslavers sold a few slaves to finance their own resettlement or to set up one or more family members in the southwestern cotton-growing areas with young slaves so as to make a fortune that would save the old family establishment. I have been disappointed in getting the Negroes I expected of Mrs. Bannister, wrote S.C. Archer, who was trying to get in on the slave trade business. She intends sending her son Robert out to Mississippi as soon as he is old enough to manage all of her Negroes for her. Individual entrepreneurs penetrated different states in different ways and to different degrees. In South Carolina, collectively they produced a highly centralized output to interstate trade, in which most slaves destined for the New Orleans market were sold in Charleston. Judging from their height, 65.3 inches on average for adult males, three inches shorter than southern white men, most of the South Carolina slaves who were sold came from the underfed and malarial rice plantations of the Low Country. But that didn't stop Leon Chabert of New Orleans, the trader responsible for a large percentage of South Carolina purchases, from basing his business on them. North Carolina, in contrast, was a terrain of vast rural stretches and little infrastructure. Its slave trade focused on a few towns, such as Salisbury in Rowan County in the western Piedmont. And here a series of men dominated the buying and transporting of slaves from the surrounding catchment area. In 1829 to 1830, it was James Huey. Within a few years, Huey was displaced by local sheriff Tyre Glenn and his confederates R.J. Purrier and Isaac Jarrett. Craven County, on the coastal sound, was the nexus of another significant trade, a concentration point for slaves brought in by sellers from outlying districts. A third major point was Chowan County in the northeastern swamps, where the county seat was the port town of Edenton. In Virginia, the slave market was even more widespread. In 1829 to 1831, 41 of the state's counties sent at least 15 people to Louisiana for sale. The whole state was, in the words of a former slave, a regular slave market. Professional slave buyers traveled up and down every road and canal, peering into every courthouse town. Slave selling financed the remaking of the Old Dominion's political economy. Francis Reeves reinvested profits from his Alabama slave trading journeys in a coal-dealing firm that eventually supplied early railroads and factories with fuel. Thus, the market for human flesh funded a new economy that was to be less dependent on plantation-style production, although newly dug canals kept bringing boats from the foothills of the mountains to the slave market in Richmond. Well supplied with tempting cash by profit-savvy southeastern banks, slave buyers, in the 1820s and onward, disciplined sellers to bring in exactly the kind of people the southwestern market sought. For instance, when Jacob Bell sold 20-year-old Lewis to slave trader John Madewell on September 1, 1830, in Kent County, Maryland, 
Madewell was getting Bell's most valuable property. Perhaps Bell would have preferred to keep Lewis, his only adult male slave, to work for him in Kent County. But Lewis would yield Madewell $500 in profit when he was resold in New Orleans two months later. And Lewis was typical of those whom the traders extracted from the old states and slavers. First, he was young. 84% of those bought in the Southeast for New Orleans between 1829 and 1831 were between the ages of 11 and 24. Second, he was male. And third, he was sold alone. Two-thirds of those brought Southwest to New Orleans were male, and most were sold solo, without family or spouses. Even among the women of childbearing age, 93% were sold without children. One night I lay down on the straw mattress with my mammy, and the next morning I woke up and she was gone, recalled one former slave, Viney Baker. Austin Woolfolk's corporate organization included systematic channels of communication and exchange, widespread advertising, consistent pricing, cash payments, and fixed locations. He and his relatives concentrated people at fixed points in preparation for making large-scale shipments. Moses Grandy saw a set of Woolfolk's barges coming into Norfolk, Virginia, from the eastern shore. Or rather, he heard the boats laden with cattle and colored people, easing into the slack waters by the docks. Cattle were lowing for their calves, and the men and women were crying for their husbands, wives, or children. The Woolfolks also shipped slaves across the Chesapeake to Baltimore's inner harbor. Employees there offloaded enslaved passengers by night and marched them east up Pratt Street through the heart of today's downtown Baltimore. Their dead, heavy footsteps and piteous cries woke young Frederick Douglass, who was living there in his enslaver's townhouse. When the chained gang reached the end of the street, it was driven through an underground passageway that led up and out into the courtyard of a private jail designed for the trade. No more warehouses, barns, and taverns. From the jail, the Woolfolks sent slaves out to New Orleans by the sea route in regular dispatches, often renting entire vessels that carried 100 or more people at a time. The vertical integration of this multi-state enterprise enabled Austin Woolfolk, who had started as a mere Georgia man, to pile up so much wealth that he could now play the grand gentleman. When University of North Carolina professor Ethan Allen Andrews visited Woolfolk at his Pratt Street pen in the 1830s, neighbors told him not only that Austin was a most mild and indulgent master, but also that his cash payments and standard prices proved he was an upright and scrupulously honest man. In the Old Southeast, white people bought and sold black people on exceptional days. It was customary, wrote ex-slave Alan Parker of the early 19th century, for those having slaves to let, to take them to some prominent place, such as a point where two roads crossed, on the first day of the new year. Quarterly court days also generated holiday crowds sufficient for community auctions, while Sundays, when gentlemen traded horses and people in the yard outside of the church, were also typical sale days. The certificates from New Orleans reveal, however, that from the 1820s onward, traders like Woolfolk were buying slaves not on a traditional calendar of rural time, but in countless individual transactions throughout a new business year. Of the 4,000-plus certificates from southeastern states in the notarial archives, 89% were created on weekdays, Monday through Friday, 
which constitute only 71% of the week. One reason, individual sales on individual days in business places, such as the bar of the Eastern Hotel, where Austin's brother John met sellers, eliminated a problem. The possibility of staged auction bids by locals who might collude with sellers to drive up the prices. Slave buying and selling was no longer extraordinary, but ordinary, something businessmen did on business days. For, despite Austin Wolfock's paternalistic act, his business was separating spouses and orphaning children. He and the new slave traders transformed the selling of human beings in the southeastern United States into a modern retrovirus, an economic organism that respected no ties or traditions and rewired everything around itself so that capitalism's enzymes of creation and destruction could flow unimpeded. At the same time, the new convenience of slave selling also met sellers' desires and needs. Soon enough, authors building on free-floating cultural excuses would publish plantation novels that painted Chesapeake enslavers as reluctant slave sellers who were driven by debt or other forms of catastrophe to send family property to the market in order to raise money. But the pattern of sale does not suggest that enslavers were paternalistic planters who had fallen on hard times and who were thus being forced to sell off slaves to make ends meet. Instead, they were men and women who were extracting cash from small portions of their total reserves of human wealth whenever they wanted it. More than half of the slaves in the South were owned by whites who claimed 20 or more people as their property. Two-thirds of the sales in the 1829 to 1831 records were executed by slave owners who sold no more than four slaves during this time span. If they had been hit by catastrophe, surely they would have sold more slaves all at once. I am in want of money, wrote B.S. King of Raleigh, North Carolina, in 1825, even as he mumbled about the moral repercussions of selling a man away from his wife. In the end, I am in want of money, usually one. You know, every time they needed money, they would sell a slave, said Robert Falls. Traders calibrated their innovations not only for southwestern entrepreneurs who wanted hands, but also to provide a highly useful service to southeastern white folks, the ability to turn a person into cash at the shortest possible notice. The documents created in William Boswell's New Orleans notary office reveal another reason why the Missouri crisis was not even a blip on the long upward climb of slavery's expansion, which in the 1820s saw the transfer of 150,000 enslaved people from the southeastern states to the southwestern states and territories, and an increase in U.S. cotton production from 350,000 400-pound bales in 1819 to more than 800,000 in 1830. The name with which Ellen Seller acknowledged his receipt of Barthélemy Bonny's $450 was a strange one, especially for a man who had fished the seas of Kent County and its surroundings. Granville Sharp Pierce's parents had chosen to name him after a different kind of disciple, the 18th-century Anglican priest Granville Sharp. The original Granville had been known for several things, including his research on the grammar of Biblical Greek. But Sharp was most famous as an international abolitionist. In the early 1770s, James Somerset, an enslaved man born in Virginia, was brought by his enslaver to London. There he escaped and sought Granville Sharp's help. The runaway wanted to sue for freedom in a London court. Somerset won the case. 
The decision ruled that slaves became free the moment they set foot on Great Britain itself, although slavery remained legal in the rest of Britain's empire. Sharp next attempted to convince the British authorities to prosecute the captain of the slave ship Zong for ordering his crew to murder 122 Africans in the middle of the Atlantic when water supplies were running low. Sharp also helped to found the colony of Sierra Leone, where the Royal Navy, once the British government abolished British participation in the international slave trade in 1808, would land Africans recovered from captured slave ships. Granville Sharp was emblematic of an earlier generation of English-speaking anti-slavery activists. Their late 18th century offensive targeted the first slavery, especially that of the Sugar Islands. That system depended, above all, on the Middle Passage, they charged, and they sought to limit slavery by ending the Atlantic trade. The American version of this long-gone anti-slavery movement had helped to emancipate slaves in marginal areas of the North. What these movements had in common was that they were composed of elite men who were trying to convince centralized power, Parliament, Congress, state legislatures elected by property-owning citizens, to mandate change through legislative or royal decree. Despite its elitism, Granville Sharp's generation did shift the center of polite society's opinion against the Middle Passage. By 1808, the governments of both the United States and Great Britain had outlawed their citizens' participation in the international slave trade. Sharp and his allies had concentrated on the international slave trade because they believed that without the continual importation of new slaves from Africa, the sugar plantations of the Caribbean would die out. Yet even as northern states were freeing most of their last slaves in the 1820s, the claim that slavery harmed the American political economy looked less persuasive every day in light of Cotton's astonishing profits. The interstate slave trade mocked the hopes of the abolitionists that slavery would die on its own. And Granville Sharp's generation had not been replaced. No substantive opposition to the expansion of slavery existed among white Americans. After the Missouri Compromise, active white opposition to slavery dwindled toward the vanishing point. Most of those who conceded that slavery was morally wrong in the abstract refused to do anything concrete about it. It was easy to blame Georgia men for excesses, as all the while the speculator upgraded the Georgia man. It was easy to propose the transportation of African Americans back to an Africa that they had never seen. It would never happen. John Quincy Adams, for instance, only needed to calculate on his fingers to see that hoping for an end to slavery through colonization was a daydream. And all the while, every new hand in every new cotton field meant markets for northern produce, more foreign exchange, cheaper raw materials for northern industry, and more opportunities for young Vermonters and Pennsylvanians who moved to Natchez. Slavery's defenders had won the arguments that mattered. Even a man whose parents had named him after Granville Sharp had become a speculator. In the 1820s, enslaved people on slavery's frontier faced the yoke-together power of the world economy, a high demand for their most crucial commodity, and the creatively destructive ruling class of a muscular young republic, and they faced it all alone. But for many years, enslaved people could only push back with hushed breaths around 10,000 fires on the southwestern cotton plantations or in the southeast, among those left behind. Although they had to keep them from white ears, the words that made up their critique of slavery mattered tremendously to them and to the future. Around the fires, 
or late at night with a mouth pressed to the ear of the person with whom one shared a bed, or coded in the testimony of the faithful at all black religious meetings, enslaved people said the word stole, and so described a history that undermined all of the implicit and explicit claims enslavers made to defend slavery. Among those with whom they now spoke a common tongue, they dared to disagree with the claim that slavery would expand, and that no one should do anything much to interfere. They rejected the claim that God, nature, or history had destined them for slavery. They exposed the assumption that white people's needs ought to trump their own, or the idea that money ought to trump conscience, pitting this word of their own against every word written on papers like the ones Granville Sharp Pierce carried with him to William Boswell's office. My mother and Uncle Robert and Joe, said Margaret Nickerson of Florida, they were stole from Virginia and fetched here. Lewis Brown explained his own genealogy in this way. My mother was stole. The speculators stole her, and they brought her to Kemper County, Mississippi, and sold her. Over and over, enslaved people said that when they were sold, or otherwise forced to move, they had been stolen. In so telling their personal histories, they accomplished two things. First, they used a newly common tongue to make their own personal histories part of a larger story. And second, they made it clear that this common story was a crime story. Buying and selling people was a crime. Buyers and sellers were criminals. Critiques of slavery as theft had been made before, but the context was different now. The international slave trade was closed, and enslavers could pose as the architects of a domesticated system no longer sustained by wars of enslavement in Africa. Meanwhile, the New Orleans notarial records, like all the legal records of Southern slavery, described the rupture that Granville Sharp Pierce imposed on Ellen's life as a legitimate transaction in legally held property. Most whites, whether in the North or the South, believed that slave owners had obtained their slaves by orderly business transactions, well recorded in law. And as the economy changed, they were suggesting that owners of property should be able to do whatever they wanted with what they legally owned. In such a context, when enslaved people said to each other, we have been stolen, they were preparing a radical assault on enslavers' implicit and explicit claims to legitimacy one that would lay an axe to the intellectual root of every white excuse, even ones that hadn't yet been dreamed up. For describing slavery and its expansion as stealing meant that slavery was not merely an awkward inconsistency in the American Republican experiment, or even a source of discourse about sectional difference. Slavery was not, then, merely something that pained white people to see. Instead, stealing says, slavery is a crime. One word, stole, came to be a history, an interpretation of the past and how it shaped the present, from Maryland to South Carolina to Texas and everywhere in between. Enslaved people recognized that the slavery they were experiencing was shaped by the ability of whites to move African Americans' bodies wherever they wanted. Forced migration created markets that allowed whites to extract profit from human beings, it brought about a kind of isolation that permitted enslavers to use torture to extract new kinds of labor. It led to disease, hunger, and other kinds of deadly privations. So as these vernacular historians try to make sense of their own battered lives, the word stole became the core of a story that explained. 
It revealed that what feet had to undergo and the way the violence of separation ripped hearts open and turned hands against body and soul. These were all ultimately produced by the way enslavers were able to use property claims in order to deploy people as commodities at the entrepreneurial edge of the modern world economy. In this critique, slaveholders were not innocent heirs of history, which is what Jefferson had made them out to be. Instead, slavery's expansion was consciously chosen, a crime with intent. Years after slavery ended, former slave Charles Grandy reflected on the motives of the enslavers who had shipped him from Virginia to New Orleans for sale. After a lifetime, he had made it back to Norfolk. Now he asked his interviewer, an African-American academic just like Claude Anderson of Hampton University, if the young man understood the significance of the statue of the Confederate soldier that loomed on a high pillar down by the harbor. Grandy himself had once passed the statue's eventual site in the hold of a slave ship. Know what it mean? Grandy asked. But the question mark was rhetorical. He already had an answer. It meant, he told the interviewer, carry the nigger down south if you want to rule him. The statue stood as a post hoc justification for the same desires that had led whites to steal him from his Virginia life, or Hetty Mitchell's mother from her Carolina parents. For if you want to rule a person, steal the person. Steal him from his people and steal him from his own right hand, from everything he has grown up knowing. Take her to a place where you can steal everything else from her, her future, her creativity, her womb. That was the true cause working behind the history of the 19th century, Grandy insisted, from slavery's expansion to its political defense and to the war that its proponents eventually started. Talk about stealing forces a focus on the slave trade, on the expansion of slavery, on the right hand in the market, on the left picking ever faster in the cotton fields. In this story, there is no good master, no legitimate heir to the ownership of slave property, no kindly plantation owner only the ability of the strong to take from others. Stealing can never be an orderly system undergirded by property rights, cushioned by family-like relationships. There is no balance between contradictory elements. There is only chaos and violence. So when enslaved people insisted that the slave trade was the crystalline form of slavery as theft, they ripped the veils off a modern and modernizing form of slavery, one that could not be stabilized or contained. Constant disruption, creation, and destruction once more. This was its nature. I heard this over again so many, many times before Grandmother died, said Helen Odom of her grandmother's story about being taken to Arkansas and sold. The greatest event in her life. Talking with each other night after night about how slavery's expansion had shaped their own lives, enslaved people, taken away or left behind, created a vernacular tradition of history that encouraged storytellers to bend every migration tale around the fulcrum of theft, and almost every tale fit. The standard methods used by slave traders were indeed much like kidnapping, just as the tale said. If you had been seized, tied to the saddle of a horse like a sack of meal, and ridden off without a chance to kiss your wife goodbye forever, this is what happened to William Gross of Virginia in the 1820s, you might compare your experience to that of being kidnapped. Some African Americans who toiled in the cotton and sugar fields had in fact been literally stolen 
even within the framework of White's property claims. John Brown watched slave trader Starling Finney and his men abduct a girl from her owner in South Carolina. The thieves kept her in the wagon on the way down to Georgia, partly so that they could repeatedly gang-rape her, but also to hide her from potential pursuit by the girl's owner. Julia Blanks said that her grandmother was freeborn in Virginia or Maryland, but Whites lured her into a coach in Washington, D.C., drove her to the White House, and presented her as a gift to Andrew Jackson's niece. Still other slaves, who had been expecting freedom under the gradual emancipation laws of northern states, found themselves in Louisiana or Mississippi when unscrupulous owners sold them south before their freedom came. Between 1825 and 1827, Joseph Watson, the mayor of Philadelphia, pursued at least 25 cases in which free African Americans from his border state area had been abducted and taken to Mississippi and Alabama. Most were children. Watson hired lawyers in Mississippi, wrote letters to slave state government officials, and tried to organize prosecution of the alleged kidnappers. To little avail. Sometimes enslaved people conflated kidnapping and plain old-fashioned slave dealing because, like Carrie Davenport's father, they were unsure of their actual legal status. Davenport's father was supposedly promised freedom by his old, old master in Richmond. But after the old man's death, his son, steal him into slavery again, said Davenport. And people who claimed to be kidnapped free men or women might have been looking for some sort of individual out from the shame of slave origins. Not I, someone like James Green might suggest. I did not belong in slavery because I, as an individual, was kidnapped. His father, he said, was a full-blooded Indian. His mother's owner, Master Williams, who called me Free Boy, walked Free James down the street to the Petersburg, Virginia auction block one day and sold him to Texas. Green spoke as if it had all been a mistake. He never should have been subjected to slavery's humiliations. But Green's daughter called him on his self-deception. She took exception, remembered the interviewer who met them both, to her father's claim that he was half Indian. She knew that her father's lighter skin and ambiguous status, I never had to do much work in Virginia for nobody but my mother, revealed that Master Williams had actually put his own son on the auction block. To the enslaved, only one other set of events in remembered history seemed as significant as the forced migration that was consuming their families and communities at an accelerating rate in the 1820s. Long after 1808, plenty of people in the South could still talk about how they had been stolen from Africa into the Middle Passage. In 1844, asked to give his age, an African-born Florida man replied, Me no no, massa, buckraman steel nigga year, year ago. To understand and explain the expansion of slavery in which they found themselves, American-born listeners borrowed terms from African survivors who had told them of how the first slavery had been made. They always done tell it am wrong to lie and steal, said Josephine Hubbard. So why did the white folks steal my mammy and her mammy from Africa? They talks a heap about the niggas stealing, said Shang Harris. What was the first stealing done? It was an Afriki, when the white folks stole the niggas. In the 1820s and 1830s, as the new professional slave trade in hands became institutionalized and expanded exponentially, so did the stories 
and so did the number of tellers. The themes of theft, the indictment of whites, and the understanding that the personal disruptions drove a new form of slavery all deepened. Anyone, enslaved people came to understand, could be taken and transported southwest. All of those taken were in some way stolen, for the basic rituals of this emerging modern market society were absurd disguises for thievery. So, for instance, implied the apocryphal tale of a woman named Venus, whose story circulated around southern fires for decades. Shoved onto the auction block by her enslaver, Venus scowled down at those who eagerly bid on her. Then she interrupted the auctioneer's patter with a sarcastic shout, Weigh them cattle! Well, such stories became classics, delivering again and again a powerful freight of indictment of whites, leading listeners from their own particular experiences into wider criticism of the absurdity of buying and selling human beings as property. What was the law, the one that should be, or even, in the case of children kidnapped from free states, the law that white people themselves had written? What was the law when bright, shiny money was in sight? asked Charlie Barber. Money make the train go? And at that time, I expect money make the ships go. To New Orleans with slaves. To Britain with cotton. Instead of being individual misfortunes, enslaved people realized their own experiences were part of a giant historical robbery, a forced transfer of value that they saw every day in the form of widening clearings, cotton bales moving toward markets, and slave coffles heading further in. African Americans were not confused about what they thought of slavery's expansion. Yet in the 1820s, enslaved people's vernacular history of being stolen was still hidden on the breath of captives. And these captives had been carried far away from any audience that had the political or economic power to do much about the situation of enslaved people, or about the endlessly multiplied theft that was still in progress. Forced migration taught enslaved people to call slavery stealing, and it provoked them to take extreme measures to escape. In 1826, an ad appeared in the Natchez Gazette, offering $50 for anyone who could capture Jim, a slave who had escaped from owner William Barrow. Purchased from Austin Woolfolk late the preceding fall at New Orleans, Jim had now run away, and Barrow suspected he'd try to pass for free on steamboats. Jim had a speech impediment, Barrow's ad pointed out. Geography also impeded escape. Most likely, Jim did not make it, although a few did. The same technology that sped the passage of enslaved migrants up the rivers of the cotton country would also carry stowaways out. Context of white supremacy. Uh, that is our first audio segment. Uh, we will pick up there. For the second segment, folks would like to chime in if you have comments on um, what you've heard. Feel free. Uh, the number to dial, 641-715-3640. The code is 564-943-POUND. Press star 6 if you would like to participate. That number again, 641-715-3640. And the code is 564-943-POUND. 
press star six if you would like to participate. Uh, if you do not have a phone or if you don't want to use your phone to dial in, you can use the free vote line. Uh, should be linked at Black Talk Radio Network. If you need the address, it's tiny, T-I-N-Y dot C-C forward slash one race. And that is the number one. Uh, that address again, tiny, T-I-N-Y dot C-C forward slash one race. And that is the number one. Uh, when you put that address in, uh, click the link on the left side. It should say free vote line. When you do that, it will open a tiny window on your screen. The top line, it's a drop down menu. Select the number that I just gave out, which again is 641-715-3640. Uh, the next line, it will ask for a name. You can, uh, excuse me, the next line will ask for the code. That code again is 5649 four three then the final line it will ask for a name you can uh, click random keys put in your real name if you're comfortable with that use a nickname whatever once you get all that entered click the green button at the bottom uh, should connect you to the program you should be able to hear us live and it's the same procedure if you would like to participate you will see the dial pad on your screen press star six uh, when you do that you will hear an audio prompt Press the number one, and we will get you on the line. Uh, before I nap, folks, just general question. Any Anyone can respond to this when you're kind of giving your observations. Uh, one of our listeners on a previous Saturday compensatory call-in uh, had questioned the use of focusing or, or saying black bodies instead of uh, black people or, or black humans. And I think I respond to that person in saying, well, I don't think anybody is doing it exclusively, but uh, at least I think the reason that Ta-Nehisi Coates uh, in the last book that we read and this book uh, and others, including myself, uh, really focus more now uh, or at least using terms and language that focus on black bodies being assaulted uh, to make it uh, to help people realize that racism, white supremacy has a physical, violent impact on black people, that this is not just we're talking about feelings or you said something nasty to me or what have you, but no, this has an actual, real, physical toll on black people uh, to really emphasize how it harms us uh, in, a, in a violent manner and how that's played out in terms of everything that we've heard in this book, having to walk in the snow with no shoes on, that sort of thing. And I feel like more of that really came through uh, in the section that we read this week. Do we think that that is helpful uh, or do we think that that's something that's not helpful? Just folks thought on that, thoughts on that, because that was something that was raised uh, a couple weeks ago. And I think this week was a great, uh, great illustration of that being done. That's it. Uh, we'll go ahead and get to the folks who dialed in who have a hand up. Uh, Mr. Demery Four, uh, caller at ten seventy eight, uh, and I think Roz, all three of you should be with us. I'll nab other hands as I see them. Yes, may I be here? Yes, sir. Okay, greetings, Gus. Greetings to the other callers and listeners. I'll try to run through this fairly quickly. I'll start with uh, Charles Ball the black man that was torn from his mother's arms when he was four years old. He spent uh, 
over 50 years enslaved. Uh, just looking at what he says about Charles Paul uh, from accounts of his own books, um, I found what I consider an act of racism when he said that Ball made it back to Maryland and knocked on his wife's door and his wife was saying, who is that that sounds like my husband? In his own narrative and 50 years of slave, he stated that he went back to Maryland, but his wife had been sold along with his children to Pennsylvania. And he went to Pennsylvania and eventually wrote those two books in Pennsylvania. Um, when he was whipped by the white man that was the owner's brother-in-law because he felt he was getting too confident, you know, you can see that today, anytime a black person is exhibiting confidence, you know, some white man or white person feels it's their responsibility or their white duty to try to take you down. But uh, back to Charles Ball, you know, he's quite a character. He did some time in the service, serving on a, on a ship. He's in the Navy. And uh, it's, it's interesting that, you know, he gave a statistic, say only one, one percent, one tenth of one percent of the enslaved uh, blacks were able to make it to the free states. And, you know, after I listen to that again, I can see because there's a difference between escaping and actually making it to the free states. And when Charles Ball had, uh, went back to Maryland, it doesn't, you know, quite seem right. He had to cross three, four slave states in order to get there, North Carolina, South Carolina, Virginia, you know, to get back to see if his wife was there, which he thought had a idea that she would either with someone else or had been stolen. But uh, it's interesting, like I say, that they come up with that percentage, but there's no, they kept meticulous records documenting uh, the transactions of slave trades, but there's no real number of how many uh, slaves actually escaped and made it to freedom. Um, uh, let's see. He could have been captured, killed, tortured along the way because you had armed white people along the way that would have been glad to uh, take him out, string him up, or whatever. And it speaks to uh, the inhumanity of whites, you know, when they can sell uh, slaves 
just out there on the on the road. You find an intersection, and a uh, person have to be coming by with a black person. Is he for sale? Nigga for sale? And just sell a man. He could have a wife back on the plantation or a whole family. And also, they made reference to uh, selling slaves on exceptional days, like the first day of the year, which now would be considered New Year's Day. Any type of celebration was time for uh, selling slaves. And they was looking at human beings as uh, wealth and mon with monetary value. Uh, when they talk about the Missouri Compromise, you know, that was actually a political move to try to keep the United States at that time, which was about 22 states, uh, from dividing. And that was in 1819. And then by the book said by 1821, Northern whites who were pretending to be, I guess, liberal-minded or abolitionists at that time, return to ignoring the rights of African Americans. It just shows the uh, dedication that white people have to practicing racism. And when it comes to abusing, torturing, and killing black people, whites are either participating or ignoring injustices against the black people. And I wanted to mention the certificate of good character, which I refer to as the good nigger certificate, uh, had to be witnessed. It was a good character certificate, but it had to be witnessed by two white men of no character. And there's even a picture of one of these so-called certificates on page 179. And if they thought that a piece of paper would keep them from encountering one of those rebellious uh, troublemakers. You know, I don't see how uh, that would guarantee that he wouldn't encounter something. And now, he, he briefly mentioned about malaria, but I think it's important to understand that uh, whites were sending blacks into like rice fields that were uh, had uh, malaria carrying mosquitoes and they wouldn't go down to the low country you know where they would send the African workers and then after they would contract malaria they would not sell or present the certificates of good character until the post malarial uh, period. So they knew what they were doing all the time. And I'm happy that uh, the cognitive development is happen happening with a lot of these slaves because they coming up with the word stolen, which is a more correct word for uh, what was happening to them, and they understood that that was a crime and that it was wrong. But I, I don't think that Charles Ball was confused about what had happened to him and that uh, he was actually a victim.
of some horrific act. I'll mute my line and give somebody else a chance. Thanks for taking the call. Right on. Uh, other folks, if you all have comments you want to get in, feel free. Can I be heard? Be heard. Hmm. Uh, I think I heard Ross first. We'll go with him. All right. Um, greetings to you, Gus. Uh, greetings to all the callers and the listeners. Yeah, this section is uh, very, very uh, interesting and powerful. Um, on page 184, I thought, in a way, the the writer was practicing racism myself um, just because of a description that he used. On page 184, he says, slave buying and selling was no longer extraordinary, but ordinary, something businessmen did on business days. For despite Austin Wolfolk's paternalistic act, his business was separating spouses and orph- orphaning children. He and the new slave traders transformed the selling of human beings in the southeastern United States into a modern retrovirus an economic organism that respected no ties or traditions and rewired everything around itself so that capital, capitalism's enzymes of creation and destruction could flow un, unimpeded. I just actually, in my mind, as I was reading that portion when the book was being read, changed the word economic, well, um, retrovirus is correct, economic organism, I basically changed it to a white supremacist organism that respected no ties or traditions and rewired everything around itself so that white supremacy enzymes of creation and destruction could flow unimpeded. So basically he's describing the system of white supremacy exactly what um, I've known it to be and basically how sophisticated it is today, just through the, um, the, the discussion of buying and selling our ancestors. And then there's, section, there's a section on page 185 um, that reinforces the reason why using the term bucks is so incorrect and why I will never use it again. Um, it says, I am the one of money, wrote B.S. King of uh, Raleigh, North Carolina in 1825. Even as he stumbled about the moral repercussions of selling a man away from his life. In the end, I am in one of money, usually one. You know, every time they needed money, they would sell a slave, as said Robert Falls. Traders, <clears throat> excuse me, traders cal- calibrated their innovations not only for Southern entrepreneurs who wanted to can, but also to provide highly useful service to South Southeastern white folks, the ability to turn a person into cash at the sort, shortest possible notice. And this just really speaks to the fact that black people were money and that um, they just used us to buy and sell just about anything. And um, uh, Mr. Demi Ford's uh, discussion about selling black people on the side of the road kind of gave me a flashback of um, how um, back in the late 80s, early 90s, you had a lot of um, hip-hop artists that would sell, sell their tapes from the trunks of their cars. And it sounded like the equivalent of white people basically selling black people out the trunks of their so-called cars at that time. Um, it's just, it just interesting that, he, that he, he brought that up in the discussion. And then um, also there was a section on page 186 um, that said, no substantive opposition to the expansion of slavery existed among white Americans. After the Missouri Compromise, active white opposition to slavery dwindled to, toward the vanishing point. Most of those who conceded that slavery was morally wrong in the abstract refused to do anything concrete about it. To me, this really speaks a lot to, like, it's describing a modern-day so-called liberal. Um, liberals are described as basically more refined versions of white supremacy, white supremacists, excuse me. And, um, again, I believe that that's why they do nothing. That's their job, is basically to sit back, watch injustice take place, and do nothing about it. That's for the Tim Wises, the Peggy McIntoshes, you can name them all. Um, it doesn't matter. Basically, that's their, their purpose is to do nothing and to be 
are silent, silently complicit in the system of racism and white supremacy. And there was a really telling section on page 187 that says, in so telling their personal histories, they accomplished two things. First, they used a newly common tongue to make their own personal histories part of a larger story. And second, they made it clear that this common story was a crime story. Buying and selling people was a crime. Buyers and sellers were criminals. And it really made me think of the fact that all of these white people that are alive today in this country, especially the ones who believe this is their country that they wish to take back, um, they are nothing but criminals. They are absolutely criminals. And I believe that a lot of us don't understand that the people we see every day, the ones we ride the trains and buses with, the ones we work for, the ones that might be our neighbors, they are all criminals, descendants of intergenerational criminals, and we are basically stolen property and prisoners of war that um, are still captive at this point. And I think enough of us don't really understand that truth. And um, if we did, we would really understand that we have to deal with white supremacy differently and to be suspicious of every white man, woman, or child you ever come across. Um, then on page 189, there's a brief section that says, this very powerful too, it says, but if you want to rule a person, steal the person, steal him from his people, and steal him from his own right hand, from everything he has grown up knowing. Take her to a place where you can steal everything else from her, her future, her creativity, her womb. And this really speaks to the psychopathology of white people and what they have done to us physically back then is what they're doing to us psychologically now. I believe that white people have been psychosocially conditioned out of our African minds, and that's why we, we function the way we do. That's why we still haven't solved this problem after 500 years is that they've really done such a number on us, and we haven't understood how systematic that number that they did was. And um, it, it just gives me a lot of force for thought about white people, just, just, just the fact that they're all, they're just all racist white supremacists. I don't look at them as racist suspects at all, every one of them. I don't care if they're nice, they're nice white supremacists. That's just how I look at it. And then I found in 190, they really described um, 12 years of slave, like, just on, on steroids. Um, proverbial, proverbial steroids, it just seemed like stealing people um, that were supposed to be free was just the biggest way of life um, during that time when they described about John Brown and the other people, John Brown witnessing uh, people stealing slaves, and then that whole paragraph where they discussed that. And then I find that on the same page on 190 later on, they described a young black male who um, tried to say that he was full-blooded Indian. It really makes me think about... Uh, black people who try to say that they're, you know, a quarter Indian and part white and Scottish and whatever other things they want to call themselves when they're just looked at as a nigger by society. And um, it just really made me think that um, it's brilliant to me, not brilliant, it was really sick that he really tried to distance himself from the fact that he was a slave to the point that uh, his own daughter had to expose the fact that it was his father who sold him. So it just really showed white psychopathology as well, the fact that Nick so-called mixed race, I call them exaginated uh, black people, um, might view themselves as a few steps above darker-skinned black people, but white people see them as nothing less than playthings and commodities, which this white man proved by selling his own child. Um, and then on page 191, there's a brief section that says, instead of being individual misfortunes, enslaved people realize their own experiences were part of a giant historical robbery a forced transfer of value that they saw every day in the form of widening, clearing, cotton bills moving towards markets, and slave coffles heading further in. To me, that really speaks to the fact that our ancestors had some understanding that this was a system of white supremacy, and it was a system that was extremely far-reaching. They may not, may not have had a global scope just based on the experience of um, 
being transported from Africa uh, to the Americas. But ultimately, they understood that there was not a white person they could con come in contact with that they could trust who was not a part of that system. And that's something that I think um, they understood more so because it was such an overt system, which is why I think today we are much less inclined to understand the system because they've done such a good job at trying to convince us that there's a such thing as good white people. Thank you so much, and um, I'll meet my line. Uh, let's see, uh, 1078, 1078, were you going to comment? Yeah, um, that's amazing that uh, both of the guys that came before me had some of the same notes that I had picked up on. Um, but good evening to everybody. How you doing, Gus? Now, um, to uh, elaborate further on the 1% that he had given, now, I wasn't sure if he was accurate on that number or not, because when you total everything out, um, he's saying basically there was a million slaves that were uh, forced migrants. Um, so he's saying that was a total of 1,000. Um, multiplied with those figures, it would be a million. I'm not sure if he was accurate there or underestimation. I think that there was a lot more than um, a, a million forced migrants. And... Um, in regards to the last comment that was made, in regards to how you rule a person, um, I've been really looking at literature written um, by uh, white people very, very suspiciously, and the fact that they really enjoy what they do, whether it's consciously or unconsciously, I feel that they glorify a lot uh, from what happened to us in the past and what they're doing to us now in the present and what they plan for us in the future. So I feel that this particular passage for if you want to rule a person was dedicated to white people who pick up this book and want to know how to uh, rule over a non-white person. It seems like they have a specific code here. You steal the person. Uh, you want to steal them from his right hand. You want to steal them from everything else he's growing up knowing. And then he flips it and says, take her to a place. So it's like the writer is really pointing out, separate the male and the female, isolate the female, get her the way you want her, and then he'll do what you say. So I just thought that that was a very interesting part, and I thought that that was a little bit of a white code dedicated to the next white person that reads this book. All right, so um, thanks a lot, and I really didn't have much to say, and you guys uh, be reading the book with you. Right on. Um I didn't. I just wanted to make sure before I got Thomas in New York, uh, the the percentage that he gave, uh, it wasn't one percent. It was one tenth of one percent. Uh, was that just making sure everybody was clear on? Yeah, on yeah, that's the, yeah, that's what I, I did. The uh, the tenth actually. I'm sorry. Right on. Yeah, I didn't. And just for folks who uh, are listening in, that paragraph is footnoted. Uh, for me, it's footnote 43 from that chapter. Uh, that's from Runaway Slaves, Rebels on the Plantation, John Hope Franklin and Lauren F. Schweigner. Uh, folks want to check out that. That's where he's talking about that one-tenth of one percentage and the number of uh, people that actually, uh, quote-unquote, escaped. Uh, Thomas in New York, did you have comments you wanted to share also? Good evening to all. Um Tom Smith in New York. Yeah, I mean, I think um, you guys pretty much touched on everything that, that I had to say. Um, part where they was talking about how they um, 
kidnapped the black girl and um, kept her in the back of the wagon so they could repeatedly gang rape her. You know, that's just how they did now. Um, you know, um, they did a little bit of talking about the, the free black man in Britain, how he's, um, he was able to sue for his um, freedom. You know, um, Britain says, hey, man, it's free here, but yet at the same time, they own slave colonies over here. So it was, um, I think um, you guys touched on everything, and I'll continue listening for the second part. Thank you. Right on, right on. A uh, few quick notes uh, I'll get in, and then if other folks uh, have commentary, if you uh, have not shared and something stood out, you want to make sure you get in, we'll make time for that also. Um, let's see, going back at the very beginning, because we kind of uh, picked up, Last week we left off in Chapter 5. They were talking about all the amusements and entertainment on the plantation uh, when Charles Ball was talking about participating uh, in their Saturday night festivities. And he's quoted as saying, a man cannot be miserable when he sees everyone about him immersed in pleasure. Um, It, uh, I don't know, (laughs) just stood out to me like... Uh, the, the, the recreation and amusements were on the weekend right now. And so I've been told, quote unquote, four day weekend because of the Dr. King holiday uh, on Monday. And if we are under a system of white terrorism, regardless of the era, formal plantation system or the more refined uh, empire that we have right now, um, I think our time and energy would be better spent looking at how to dismantle that system. I think racists, they love it. They enjoy. I think that's why they make a big deal. That was in uh, 12 Years a Slave, and we read that a couple years ago. They love it uh, when black people are playing music, dancing, doing all that stuff because uh, we're not thinking uh, about how to solve this problem. Uh, when we are focused on just silliness and what have you, great, more of that. Let's, let's, uh, let's encourage that. I think Mr. Fuller has a recording where he says, hey, I'll come play the banjo. I'll do the tambourine uh, if you need it. Uh, and I even, even see that today in the way that they focus our time and energy. Uh, the next section, yeah, I was curious about that number as well. I think you all already touched on that in terms of how you would get an accurate count of the number uh, of black people who did uh, escape during this time period. That seems questionable. Uh, I'm not surprised that you would you know, have a, a low rate of success just for the reasons that I think he uh, outlined that every single white person uh, would be on the lookout to nab you, uh, whether they're stealing you for their own interests or whether they're returning you uh, to the racist enslaver uh, who's going to be looking for you as well, uh, and even other non-white people uh, betraying you along the way. I'm not surprised that it would be a low success rate, but that seems... Uh, I just had a had a question about that, but that might be worth worth checking out uh, Mr. John Hope Franklin's book to see see what he has to say about that as well. Um, and I didn't see much of a difference now in terms of where it's every single white person should be thought of as someone who is not your friend and who will be opposed to your efforts of liberation ending racism. Uh, moving into the next chapter, I thought it was amazing how they had statistics where they could correlate uh, the price of buying a black person uh, that that would uh, dramatically increase based on the amount of cotton picked and the price of cotton per pound as those two things went up then you could charge more you could get more money for buying a black person just meticulous detail on this system white people are not ignorant you have some interesting uh, graphs that go with that as well Uh, I thought it was real just the, the profound detail 
uh, that he shares about uh, selling forced uh, transportation of black bodies from Virginia and some of the states that were a bit more northern Virginia, Maryland, that area, uh, even North Carolina, transporting them south uh, down to Louisiana uh, and Georgia. Uh, just really, really significant uh, chunk of text right here where he says uh, we can see that in the 1820s, enslavers had also had also come as close to fully monetizing human bodies and lives as any set of capitalists had ever done. Starting in the fall of 1829, buyers and sellers also had to comply with a new Louisiana law that required everyone who imported an out-of-state slave for sale to create and file a certificate of good character. I think Mr. Demery already touched uh, on that, which again just shows that they are not ignorant. They're already paying attention. Wait a minute. I think they're trying to push their bad niggers off on us. We're not getting any more of these upstart darkies down here. We're going to try and codify this process so we can kind of weed out some of the more rebellious Negroes who might cause us uh, a bit more trouble. Uh, I'm sure they have the same sort of system uh, in place now. They keep a lot of extensive paperwork uh, on us. They're stopping frisks and that sort of thing. Um, as Mr. Demery said, they do have one of the certificates in the book. I'd say if you, you know, get a copy of the book, even if you don't want to read uh, the whole thing, if you just want to listen, it does have some pretty interesting uh, images and uh, graphs and what have you, statistics to just kind of give you uh, greater insight uh, as we read. Um, that transportation of black bodies that he touched on, that is absolutely still in effect. I think that's hugely important. I think you see that in a variety of ways uh, today, whether it is uh, land confiscation, eminent domain, we're going to take your property and make you move, uh, whether it's greater confinement, uh, we'll put prisons everywhere and just stack you in them until they burst. Uh, we will ruin the schools so that you will voluntarily move your body and your family's bodies uh, because there are no schools. I mean, they just have a variety of means of being able to force non-white people, particularly black people, to move wherever they want us uh, to move, whether it's forced or whether they get us to do it voluntarily. Um, yeah, definitely. The, the gang rape, I think Thomas in New York uh, touched on that. That's been a running element uh, in the text of the book. Uh, throughout so far, the, the sexual exploitation of black people, which is standard operating procedure, core aspect of white culture all the way through uh, 21st century, obviously. Um, I thought that was really important where he, he talked about how they had this increase in literature uh, that was talking about these down and out whites who, you know, had a bad run of luck and, and were forced to sell some of their beloved Negro property, uh, that that is just nonsense. It is, is total racist uh, deception. And then the statistics to bear that out, that most of these whites who were selling folks uh, it just seemed that they wanted to make a few uh, extra dollars, uh, not that they, you know, were really down and out uh, and at risk of going bankrupt. They're just, oh, you know, eh, I'll sell a few niggers here. Uh, take you two and, and fine, I'll go make me $1,000 and, and keep chilling. I mean, just the total crude pathology uh, on display and being able to make a lot of money profiting from terrorizing, torturing black people. Um, let's see. A few other things. I thought this character, Granville uh, Sharp, I thought that was important. Uh, it To me, almost for a second, I was thinking this is another example of the author practicing racism and a wider trend. If we're going to tell any sort of have any sort of examination of racism, white supremacy, we got to be got to make sure that we include good white people. Now, I think this is going to come up again in the second audio segment. So I might, you know, kind of pause my commentary because I think it's going to come up explicitly in the next segment. But uh, to bring that up, 
when these people were basically powerless, non-existent, number one. He's always said you got gangs of white people. White people collectively are getting more and more powerful by going along with this. There really is no, oh, wait a minute, we should be nice to the Negroes. They're human beings. You really don't have that. These outliers, they are not statistically significant, as Dr. Cambon said. Few and far in between, and I think it just adds to that confusion uh, because these people, the John Browns, Harriet Beecher Stowe's, they get highlighted as though they are not racist when it might just be that they disagree with a particular aspect uh, of racism, white supremacy. But I thought him including this guy who uh, allegedly went out to fight uh, for this escaped uh, black person, James uh, Somerset, uh, who escaped from Virginia, made it to London and London and was able to be quote unquote freed. Uh, and then I, I did not know, I did think it was interesting because I did not know about the slave ship zone uh, where the crew, uh, these whites murdered 122 black people because they ran out of water and said, well, you know, we got a ration. Oh, well, we just lost the niggers. We'll have to go back and steal more, which I thought was important. Just again, you cannot have enough evidence to make sure we're really emphasizing total pathology, total disregard for the humanity of blacks, and this sort of thing gets really minimized, uh, where, where they talk about slavery, they give you the gone with the wind, uh, they'll give you other uh, the root, uh, excuse me, I was going to say the roots, uh, they'll give you other uh, renditions to really dilute and minimize. No, this is, I mean, like the crudest form of terrorism and pathology you can imagine. Total disregard for black people. They really don't give you uh, enough of that in school or any other avenue, in my opinion. So I did appreciate that, but I, I thought it could have been another way. He was practicing racism, got to get in some good white people. And I think that's going to come up in the second portion. Um, yeah, I appreciated uh, the importance of words describing this as stolen, beginning even right there, uh, understanding the significance of words and talking about racism as a crime. I think that's something that we emphasize on this program all the time. This is not passive this is not something where white people are just sitting around ignorant and oh i didn't know no you're actively involved in the greatest form of terrorism on the planet i thought that was really important uh that be emphasized as well uh, particularly where he says it uh succinctly in this story there is no good master no legitimate heir to the ownership of slave property no kindly plantation owner only the ability of the strong to take from others. Stealing can never be an orderly system undergirded by property rights, cushioned by family-like relationships. I think that is the typical way, exactly what he's saying it should not be. That is the typical way uh, that we are encouraged, promoted to talk about uh, this era of terrorism against black people, our ancestors, uh, which is totally inaccurate and, in my opinion, is totally disrespectful uh, to those black people. That's, again, why I don't use the term shuck and jive. Uh, I think I will... Mm. Yeah, that gang rape session was really important. This And to me, that section where he talked about even free uh, black people being stolen uh, and enslaved wherever else they're going to take them south to Louisiana, Georgia, where he said earlier that most of the free black people cooperated with whites. Well, I just said I'm not sure if that's true. I think we had difference of opinion on the program. Some people thought that was true. Some people did not think that was true. I, it's hard for me to fathom that being the case. If you've got, this seems like it's pretty widespread. I think you all already commented on that also. If it's widespread enough that this is kind of known and people are writing books about this 12 years of slave, man, I was stolen. Uh, and they had me down here, you know, enslaved and tortured me to work on their rice plantation or cotton plantation or whatever, you know, you you are doing. How is it? How would I have any sort of positive relationship where I'm going to feel that I need to go along with whites under any 
circumstances. I think the context when he made that statement previously was under uh, emergencies, like if something had happened, the free, quote unquote, free black people would side with whites. I'm just not not sure if that's true in this section further uh, enforced my suspicions. Uh, just I thought that segment where he said uh, Julia Banks said that her grandmother was freeborn in Virginia or Maryland, but whites lured her into their coat. Oh, that wasn't one. Uh, Joseph Watson, the mayor of Philadelphia, pursued at least 25 cases in which free African-Americans from his border state area had been abducted and taken to Mississippi and Alabama. Most were children. Watson hired lawyers in Mississippi, wrote letters to slave state government officials and tried to organize prosecution of the alleged kidnappers to little avail. Again, this gets really minimized. I don't think most of the images that we have of white enslavement of black people, it's not you know, eight, nine, ten-year-old black children uh, being shackled, stolen, raped, beaten. That's not the image that you have, and this happened all the time. I mean, I've seen quite a few books, even very recent books, where they emphasize this is children, this is black children, uh, and I think that just continues today with the foster care system. Uh, I am going to go ahead and read that last passage, and then we'll nab some of the other callers uh, to go back. Julia Banks said that her grandmother was freeborn in Virginia or Maryland, but whites lured her into a coach in Washington, D.C., drove her to the White House and presented her as a gift to Andrew Jackson's niece. Just astounding. <laughs> like, uh, and again, I think it's, it's deliberate that we don't have most of this information uh, in a book like this. I would be willing to wager a hefty sum that more white people would read a book like this than black people, which, again, white people are not ignorant. They're the ones that I think Edward Baptist writes a book like this for most of the history classes that I've taken at the collegiate level. It's mostly white people. I think whites would be the ones who are more likely, not every single white person, but I definitely think you have more white people who are very aware of this type of information and the history of what they've done to us than black people. I think if you had more black people who had this type of detailed knowledge, man, it would show in our behavior. And I will pause there. The caller, uh, I guess you're on the vote line. Did you have a comment that you wanted to get in? Hello. Good evening, everyone. Can you hear me? Yes, ma'am. Okay. Thank you. Um, thank you so much for taking my call. I just wanted to, I guess, go back a little bit when you're talking about the tongues and how people were used for amusement. I didn't realize, I mean, I, it was disturbing by, you know, when you talked about it last week and a little bit of this week, but I didn't realize how really disturbing it was to last night. Um, I'm a student at the University of Memphis. There was a basketball game. We won, yay, I guess, whatever. But one of our students got hit in the mouth, I guess, by, by elbow or something, and he was bleeding really, really, really bad, I guess, really bad. Um, but he shot the little free throws, and they won. And the coach, he's like, oh, we had to take, we're going to, you're going to take up his mouth. You're going to do whatever it takes. He's going to go out there and shoot those free throws. I was like, are you serious? This is what I'm saying to myself. And so I listened to the clip online to make sure I heard it correctly. And I was like, this is a child. They said supposedly he's a fifth-year senior. College is four years. Why is he here an extra year? And I know they have an academic department that helps them because I, I teach here as well because I'm a doctoral student. So I see, I see this whole department where there's supposed to be people here helping these students succeed. I was like, where's he, where are his parents? I wrote a letter to the president. I was like, this is not realistic. But I think people just think this is okay. Even the student was like, well, I wanted to do this for the fans. I mean, he bled. He must have bled for a good 10, 15 minutes after it was over. Because the other players were like, oh, he's still bleeding. And... 
He was like, oh, baloney. The ref told the coach to put him out of the game. But I guess like I said, we're like a second or something left. He's like, no, he's going to shoot these free throw shots. I'm like, no one else can shoot a free throw. And they made, and the worst thing is they made the child swallow his own blood to continue playing. And I was like, this cannot be real life. But it is. Uh, that's all I have to say. I'm really upset. I can't believe I go to the school. I didn't really, I haven't really liked the school for a while. And uh, now I really know why. <laughs> that, that certainly. Totally, to me, uh, sounds like racism, white supremacy uh, in play and devaluing of, of black bodies. But I don't know what that has to do with the book we're reading tonight. Uh, this is the no. Well, you were talking about the tongue part in the mouth. I guess that's why. And talk about devaluing the black bodies, and I don't know. I guess that's why I thought. Okay. I'm, I'm sorry. Uh, no, yeah. no apology. Just and, you know, being for amusement and attention. And even the student was like, oh, I need to amuse the fans. You know, we talk about the amusement and stuff. Like, that is not amusing. Those people do not care whether you live or die. Mm. Mm. That is definitely true. Absolutely. I just try to uh, make sure folks don't get too off on, on tangents and things from the books. We had a lot of that, particularly with the last book. But definitely uh, another illustration of racism, white supremacy at work. Uh, the caller, I guess our caller, fire, retired firefighter in Florida. Do you have comments you want to add as well, sir? Greetings, everyone. Um, one of the things that I've understood about counter-racist codification is it is vital for the victims of racist white supremacy to have the most razor-sharp vocabulary uh, specifically meaning the fewest amount of words with the largest impact. Uh, so I said that to say for, for words like stealing, terror, rape, black bodies, I think it's on the money, actually. Uh, there, there is a tendency, because we've been harmed uh, so horrendously, to kind of like sugarcoat uh, or clean, or, or 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 you know, dress up, dress up the the experience, you know, to feel a little better. But I I, I don't know where that would be a uh, 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 something uh, constructive in the long run. I think the best thing is to do is deal with reality, and and our our situation. Uh, as we are reading, uh, and today is the worst-case scenario. Uh, so uh, I, uh, I uh, uh, think the idea of those words are significant and important. I think that that was, has something to do with the, the question that you uh, uh, laid out in the beginning of, of the, uh, of the uh, program. Uh, and... I have in my notes, and white people are not going to help us with with this razor sharp codification. They're not. They're not going to help help us at all. Uh, uh, question comes to my mind based on, on on this this book and how my brain computer uh, interprets it. Are white people redeemable? <laughs> you know, which I don't. You know, to to a large level, I don't think so. Uh, also about the writer. Uh, 
I, I know we haven't got to the end, but I, I would be I would be very surprised uh, 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 that he's probably not going to write a parallel uh, uh, between on what he was he's writing about uh, 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 during this period of time under the system of racism and white supremacy and how it uh, relates directly to what's going on today and make it very simple so non-white people who read this book, especially non-white black people who read this book, will fully understand on what he's talking about. Uh, and and also on what his answers are to solving the problem, being he's a white person. I think every white person that writes books like this or, or pretends that they are uh, uh, countering racism, they also are obligated to give their answer to the problem. That, that just makes logical sense to me. And uh, thank you for listening. Absolutely. Absolutely. Appreciate the response to the question. Nat Turner is coming up in the second audio segment. That should be grand to see how he uh, writes about Mr. Turner. Uh, If folks have uh, other comments that they want to make sure they get in, uh, we have about, I don't know, eight minutes before we get to the second audio. Uh, Quickly to Mr. Demi Ford. And there were other people who wrote in. Um, to say that they are uh, enjoying the book a lot, they're learning a lot, even some of the, the gruesome uh, detail, but they are uh, enjoying uh, listening to the book, whether they're listening live or to the archives. I, too, uh, it's almost wild that this was an accidental selection. We were supposed to be reading Medical Apartheid. I was kind of bummed uh, that we weren't doing that, but this has been uh, a great backup choice. I'm glad. And this is the importance of voting, because the only reason we picked this book is because this book did get uh, a high number of votes. This was right neck. I think this was like third Uh, in the voting behind medical apartheid. So important for folks to vote when it's time to pick a book we're going to do. Mr. Demery Ford emailed, uh, I think a couple days back, he said, do you think there was any significance to page 118? uh, While Ball and Simon picked cotton side by side, exchanged only a few grunted words, but later Simon whispered to Ball to conserve what strength he could because they would have to work until it was too dark to tell cotton from weed. I think this is from uh, two weeks ago uh, when this segment was in the book. Uh, To me, I guess the only significance that I would pick out is that um, this is not like, you know, yes, we're all in it together and in love type of thing. We're not doing a whole lot of talking. It's just the environment that you're in. It's not even conducive to that. I mean, you could be beaten because uh, that's that sort of thing. So we're not doing a whole lot of chit-chatting out here in the field. But within that, we are trying to do the little bit that we can uh, to look out for one another. And I think he's uh, kind of written about that uh, through the weeks that even came out today uh, to try to do what we can to help one another survive in just, you know, horrendous uh, conditions of terrorism. Uh, did anything stand out uh, to you in that segment, Mr. Demery? Oh, uh, yes. Uh, yeah, I thought it was, uh, you know, strange if you would work, you know, from 10 to 12 hours a day, you know, side by side. I think the slave master or the driver or whatever had them together, you know, to pit them in like a competition type mode or to get Charles Ball up to speed on picking cotton but then that they didn't say anything to each other, it did not mean that there was animosity there because later uh, he told him uh, to reserve his strength because they would be picking until nightfall. So I thought that, 
you know, that was noteworthy that, you know, they would assist each other in the fields. And Charles Ball seemed to relate to the other victims quite well. Uh, any of the other folks who dialed in with the hand up, do you all have any comments you want to get in before we get to the second audio segment? Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Yeah, the fire, um, firefighter from Florida, he just said something, and um, I believe it was him, and I, I just, I, I kind of agree with it, um, I think he said, you know, from reading this passage, you know, are white people even redeemable? You know, like, the, just reading this passage your last week's, you know, I mean, it, these are relentless crimes, you know, like, it, you know, it's no it's no coming back from what, they, what they've done, you know, and it's just so, it's so telling, you know, like, how we have it today, you know, I mean, just why they, 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 they treat us the way they do. Um, you know, it's, I mean, it's just uh, ongoing pattern uh, of abuse and terrorism, and um, you know, I, I don't think they're redeemable. You know, I, I don't think they they have the ability to um, implement justice. They just don't have it in them. They, they're not. It's something not right with the way they think and, and um, the, with the actions they do. And, um, you know, just reading this passage, I mean, there's so many things that stood out that I, I just, you know, shook my head while, while you know, the, the guy I was talking just shaking my head. Like, you, I mean, I can't just believe it. You know, it's just like so, so much, you know, from the start of this book to hearing people walking for miles barefoot, working in the snow barefoot, to how they now got it to, I think they was a part of Carolinas where, you know, the slaves didn't grow, but all to the same height. You know, I mean, they done breeded them to the to the, to the the point where they breeded us, I should say, to the point where they, they kind of had it mapped out. You know, it's, it's just terrible. And, um, you know, reading books like this, it just makes me think that, you know, I just really don't like these people. You know, I, I want something... Something has to be done to them for what they've done to us, you know, and I'll meet my mom. There's a whole, well, there's several um, books, I'm sure, but they have uh, whole books written uh, about the Zong massacre where they killed 122 uh, Africans because they ran out of water. Uh, so certainly niggers got to be the first to die, but they have whole books uh, written about that if folks want to do more research. Uh, with that, uh, we'll go ahead and get to the second audio segment. If you had additional commentary uh, and you didn't get to share, uh, just jot a note down because we should have ample time once the second audio segment wraps up for folks to share. Again, Nat Turner will pop up. Uh, there'll be another discussion of good white people uh, and Christianity, the role of religion. I, that's got to be talked about it. They're going to talk about Nat Turner. So everybody can uh, listen close, take notes, and uh, we'll get to the second audio segment. Edward Baptist. The half has never been told context of white supremacy. The enormity of what was happening in the cotton fields and traders' jails of the New South was still only beginning to leak out in the 1820s. Runaways would carry most of what was carried. It wasn't going to leak out with many whites. Most found ways to accommodate themselves to what they saw, 
to sweep the inconvenient fragments under the rug. Mrs. Ann Anderson sat by her window and cried, remembered ex-slave Elisha Green, seeing in his mind again a white woman in the house where he'd worked back in May Slick, Kentucky. Wagons, filled with crying children, came down the street as she watched, and then a clanking caterpillar of men in irons followed. The oldest in the lead looked like to be about seventy years old, and he sang Hark from the Tomb, a doleful hymn that in 1825 was already old-fashioned. So Mrs. Ann Anderson wept and sat still. In the 1820s, a few scattered white dissidents were trying to raise the issue of slavery. But these white folks were in practical terms almost as powerless as white folks could be in this era of American history. For instance, there were the Southern Quakers, or at least a few of them. Although Pennsylvania was a settlement of New World Quakers, members of the Society of Friends, as the Quakers officially denominated themselves, had lived in North Carolina since the early 18th century. During the late 18th and early 19th centuries, as other denominations of Protestants in the South accommodated themselves to slavery, many North Carolina Quakers chose slavery over their own religious identity. But a few reacted against slavery's deepening. There was Rachel Leonard, who became the first white woman to address a mixed male-female gathering on the subject when she read her address to the North Carolina Manumission Society in the 1820s. Then there was Elihu Embry, an eastern tennis Quaker, who in the early 1810s saw enslaved people being driven in irons along the roads across the mountains. Embry couldn't sit by the window. He freed his own slaves and launched a newspaper called The Emancipator. His editorials rejected conventional excuses, such as Thomas Jefferson's claim that separation from loved ones mattered little to African Americans. No, insisted Embry. Enslaved people had as much sensibility and attachment to their families as Jefferson did. These isolated dissidents were often unable to see beyond the assumptions that they took on board with their own self-identification as white. But at their best, they knew that slavery was changing and moving, and they knew that slavery's growth troubled them in ways that could not be dealt with in the sphere of normal political calculations and regional rivalries. At the same time, other white Southerners began to see dissent as more problematic, especially after the Missouri crisis. By the time Embry died in 1820, some of his local associates, including fellow Quaker Charles Osborne, had already been forced out of Tennessee. Osborne moved to Free State, Ohio, and established The Philanthropist, the first newspaper to advocate the unconditional abolition of slavery. He also met a young New Jersey Quaker named Benjamin Lundy. At 19, Lundy had gone to the Ohio Valley to practice his trade of saddle-making. In Wheeling, Virginia, which linked the Virginia Valleys to the Ohio River and ultimately New Orleans, he realized the extent of the slave trade network. Wheeling, he wrote, was part of a great thoroughfare for the traffickers in human flesh. Their coffles passed through the place frequently. My heart was deeply grieved. I heard the wail of the captive. I felt his pang of distress, and the iron entered my soul. Lundy moved Embry's Emancipator to Baltimore and renamed it the Genius of Universal Emancipation. Genius meant spirit, or breath, and Lundy's paper was the first white-run abolitionist newspaper to keep breathing for more than a handful of issues. 
Initially, Lundy used it to support the program of the American Colonization Society, ACS, which in the 1820s was the only prominent white organization to make a claim to be against slavery. The ACS proposed to solve the problem of slavery by shipping emancipated slaves to Africa and elsewhere. Even this expedient was too anti-slavery for many whites. The escape of any African American, including the already free, shrank the potential market in stolen humans. Perhaps that explains the murderous sentiment of the hired captain of an 1826 Quaker-sponsored voyage to resettle freed slaves in Haiti. He told his Quaker employer he'd prefer to tie the 40 emancipated African Americans on the ship to the Quaker himself and drown them all in the Gulf Stream. Most free African Americans despised the ACS, believing that the country of their birth was their country. A Quaker who interviewed free people of color in North Carolina learned that most were only considering transportation out of their home state because slave traders kept kidnapping their children. Once Lundy settled in Baltimore, African Americans convinced him to move from colonization to advocacy of the immediate and unconditional end of slavery. In the 1820s, Baltimore was the biggest center of the domestic slave trade on the East Coast. African Americans left behind there had much to say about the trade that had taken so many of their kinfolk. Their conversations with Lundy agitated him into confrontation with powerful pro-slavery expansion interests. Soon, Lundy was charging in the pages of the genius that all slaveholders were disgraceful whoremongers who bred human beings for the market. He saved his greatest fury for the Woolfolks, describing the family as a set of lawless pirates whose heart-rending cruelty caused fatal corruption in the body politic. On January 9, 1827, Austin Woolfolk approached Lundy as the editor was locking up his print shop for the day. Woolfolk threw the Quaker to the ground and beat him severely, then walked away. Lundy pressed assault charges against Woolfolk, but when the case came to trial, the judge declared that the editor deserved chastisement. He fined the slave trader one whole dollar and then gave a speech praising the slave trader's economic benefits to the state of Maryland. He added that Woolfolk also had removed a great many rogues and vagabonds who were a nuisance in the state. The government of Louisiana would have been unhappy to hear that the Maryland justice system encouraged the transportation of dangerous slaves to New Orleans. Lundy had an apprentice, a young man from Newburyport, Massachusetts. His name was William Lloyd Garrison. Every day, as he set the type for the next issue of The Genius, Garrison listened thoughtfully to local African-American men men such as William Watkins and Jacob Greener, who came to the printing shop to talk with Lundy and each other. What they said revealed, as Garrison later put it, the radical doctrine of immediate, unconditional emancipation. Lundy began to travel more, and his extended absences gave Garrison a chance to run the paper himself. It quickly became clear that the apprentice had a stronger taste for confrontation, and unlike the diminutive Lundy, Garrison was built like a linebacker. When Garrison labeled Francis Todd, a Massachusetts shipowner whose vessel had transported 75 slaves to Louisiana, a highway robber and murderer, and an enemy of the human species, Todd decided the courts were the better part of valor. He sued Garrison for libel and won. Garrison couldn't pay his fine, so he was sentenced to six months in jail. 
After his release, Garrison headed north. Another slave trade-driven migration. Settling in Boston, he launched a new paper called The Liberator. Free African Americans were already using the boom in newspaper publication and readership to spread what they had seen and heard from those who had survived forced migration. In 1827, Samuel Cornish began to publish the New York Freedom's Journal. Cornish, an African American who had been born free in Delaware, had spent 1819 as a missionary to enslaved people on Maryland's eastern shore, just as the long-distance trade to New Orleans was beginning to drain hands from places like Kent County. The newspaper's first issue contained a harrowing account of something he'd seen there, the sale of a man to a trader Cornish identified as Mr. W. Freedom's Journal was the first African-American newspaper in the United States. It was not Cornish, however, but his Boston subscription agent who made the most influential case that slavery was getting worse and bigger, not better and smaller. Born free in North Carolina, David Walker had also lived in Charleston. There, in 1822, he saw panicked whites torture and execute over 30 enslaved men who had allegedly conspired with a free black man named Denmark Vesey to launch a slave revolt. Fearing for his safety, Walker moved to Boston, where he established a secondhand clothing shop in the city's African-American neighborhood. Garrison, who relied heavily on black subscribers and donors in order to publish The Liberator, established his printing shop in the same neighborhood. Walker's store was the end of the cotton chain, and as he sat in it, he breathed the dust of frayed fibers that had originally been pulled from the bowl by southwestern hands. The fibers had a tale to tell, as did the free black sailors who shopped in Walker's store. When night fell, he wrote these stories down in his office at the back of the narrow shop. He shaped his thoughts into four devastating essays and put them between the covers of one book. And when An Appeal to the Colored Citizens of the World appeared in September 1829, it was like nothing anyone had ever read before, though it had all been set around a thousand fires. In it, Walker ferociously assailed slavery, slaveholders, and their enablers. Most whites, he charged, either directly or tacitly supported slavery and were thus our natural enemies, though slave traders were particular devils. Walker insisted that the dynamism of 19th century slavery made it worse than earlier forms. The ancient Spartans did not lock the helots in coffles and drag them from their wives and children, children from their parents, mothers from their suckling babes. In 1776, there were but 13 states in the Union. But after half a century, now there are 24, most of which are slaveholding states, and the whites are dragging us around in chains and in handcuffs to their new states and territories to work their mines and farms, to enrich them and their children. He'd read, in white Carolinians' newspapers, stories decrying the way the Turks denied the Greeks their independence, and in the same paper was an advertisement which said, eight well-built Virginia and Maryland Negro fellows and four wenches will positively be sold this day to the highest bidder. Americans, I ask you candidly, wrote Walker, was your sufferings under Great Britain one hundredth part as cruel and tyrannical as you have rendered ours under you? Turning to black readers, he proclaimed that freedom is your natural right. Walker was playing with fire. He knew how dangerous whites could become. 
Even white abolitionists feared that violent resistance would turn white audiences against emancipation. But whites had treated enslaved Africans as if it were no crime to bind them with chains and handcuffs and then beat and murder them as they would rattlesnakes. Thus, black people had the same right to defend themselves against crimes and oppressions claimed by American revolutionaries. It is no more harm for you to kill a man who is trying to kill you than it is for you to take a drink of water when thirsty. And so he praised Haiti, the glory of the blacks and the terror of tyrants, men who would be cut off to a man before they would yield to the combined forces of the whole world. So act like men. Prepare, Walker commanded slavery survivors in the tones of an Old Testament prophet, to inflict the consequences of sin if justice was not done, even if that meant facing one's own death in the effort. Once the battle was joined, once they saw that victory was possible, slaves would be willing to pay the cost. Let twelve black men get well-armed for battle, and they will kill and put to flight fifty whites. Once you get them started, they glory in death. For enforced submission disguised mighty rage beneath. As Mr. Jefferson wisely said, they have never found us out. Walker's statements required real courage in an era when Granville Sharp had morphed into Granville Sharp Pierce. If any wish to plunge me into the wretched incapacity of a slave or murder me for telling the truth, know ye that I am in the hand of God, he wrote. What is the use of living when in fact I am dead? Hoping to get a rebellion started, Walker stuffed copies of the pamphlet into the pockets of pants and jackets that he sold to sailors. Some knowing, some not, they carried the spore of Walker's words into the harbors of the slave states, where almost all American merchant ships made annual pilgrimages to pick up cotton bales. In March 1830, authorities in Savannah, New Orleans, and Charleston began to find copies of Walker's appeal in the possession of free blacks. They immediately went into panic mode. Seeking to quarantine the pamphlet like a contagious disease, Southern state governments banned free black sailors from disembarking from their merchant vessels. They panicked at rumors of slave revolts from Newburn, North Carolina, to the other end of the pipeline of stolen people in Opelousas, Louisiana. Georgia and Mississippi passed laws imposing the death penalty on free black people who disseminated anti-slavery materials. State legislatures planned to ban the teaching of literacy to enslaved African Americans. Instruction in basic mathematics would remain legal, however, so that black drivers would be able to subtract the number of pounds of cotton picked from the quota, thus deriving the requisite number of lashes to deliver. Unlike other political questions, abolition talk carried with it the seed of revolutionary violence. Therefore, Southern officials and newspaper writers claimed it was not protected speech. Savannah's mayor sent a letter to his Boston counterpart, Harrison Otis, asking the conservative New England politician to arrest the old clothes dealer for publishing such a highly inflammatory work. Though sympathetic to the request, the Boston mayor had to refuse. Walker had broken no Massachusetts law. Rumors in Boston claimed that various southern state governments had put a bounty of $3,000 on Walker's head double that if he was brought south still alive. In August 1830, at the age of 33, he collapsed in the doorway of his shop and died in convulsions. 
Many African Americans in Boston believed that he had been poisoned, though no direct evidence for this survives. The official cause of death was consumption, probably what we would call tuberculosis. Or perhaps Walker had simply breathed too much cotton dust. Even with Walker dead and black sailors locked on board their ships, the language of being stolen was already making its way by secret pathways out of lands that were being remade by the whipping machine and the speculators who fed it with human flesh. Beginning in the mid-1830s, an abolitionist movement finally emerged. Much of its moral force and most trenchant analysis came from former slaves such as Frederick Douglass and other African Americans living in northern communities, including David Walker's Boston. Of them, many, like Douglass, were southern refugees who had been pushed to escape from the slavery zone, usually as fugitives, by the new expansion of the slave trade. The new movement would also be led by white allies, most especially William Lloyd Garrison and the host of white women who signed petitions and wrote books. However, the white abolitionists would always be a small minority inside a white northern population that mostly wanted to ignore slavery. But in contrast to earlier, more half-hearted white critics, the new abolitionists now agreed that slavery needed to end, and it needed to end as soon as possible. Much of the new urgency now pulsing in their veins had been transmitted to them from formerly enslaved people who had survived the new slave trade, many of whom also became significant actors in the movement. Running beneath abolitionist activity and critique, like the spinal plates under a mountain range, were the words that forced migrants themselves chose to use to understand their history. The language of being stole was everywhere in those words, so that in 1849, African-American abolitionist William Wells Brown would assert that his master was in fact merely a man who stole me as I was born. Brown had first heard that phrasing, not in the printed rhetoric of abolitionists, but in the philosophy of the illiterate forced migrants among whom he had once been numbered. Yet the abolitionists' hope for a dramatic change was implicitly premised on the idea of converting a significant portion of the nation's white majority to their anti-slavery cause. In the meantime, could anything limit the damage being inflicted by the juggernaut of slavery expansion, in whose path still lay more than two million lives? To many enslaved African Americans, only one phenomenon seemed to offer much immediate help. And this phenomenon, this ally in the cause of ending slavery, came with several drawbacks. It was invisible, it was lacking in physical power, it was prone to giving commands unenforceable by law, and it was often silent. Go back to the sale that Samuel Cornish witnessed on Maryland's eastern shore, but do not focus on Cornish, an educated free man confronted by the hypocrisies of the slave republic. Put aside the mental maps that draw lines of correspondence and credit to connect nodes like Baltimore to New Orleans. Brush aside for a moment price curves of hands sold by a professionalized slave trade. Instead, focus on the existential situation of the man that Mr. W. bought, William, a member of the Methodist Church. Woolfolk ordered William to stretch out his hands in order to be tied. William rather shrank from this, as every honest man would do. However, with much piety and resignation, he submitted. Watching this, his friends, fellow church members began to weep bitterly. William turned, 
Don't cry for me. God is everywhere. Then Wolfuk led him away. William believed that underneath the surface world, where all the powers of the world arrayed themselves against him, lay a world of the spirit where the real value would be measured. It was perhaps the same world through which an enslaved girl moved in a vision she had at a Tennessee prayer meeting, one which, as an old woman, 80 years later, she would recount to an interviewer. Clear as day, she remembered what she had seen. I was traveling along a big road. Down on each side I saw the souls in torment. Many of them were people I had known in life. They were just roaming and staggering along. They were saying, oh, how long? I met on the road a great host, some walking, some on mules, some going down to hell. For those taken, for those left behind and bereaved, for all who knew that they too could be stolen, the acceleration of slavery's expansion was hell, separation from all that gave life in the world meaning. By the late 1820s, hell was more real than ever. William professed his faith that God was everywhere, but surely he must have wondered if God would come with him on the road through hell, into the holds of the ships tacking around Florida into the Gulf, if he would climb with William onto the block and stand beside him in the notary's office in New Orleans. David Walker, writing in his old clothes shop in Boston, saw the coffles in his mind's eye, and prophet-like, predicted that God would arrive on the frontier. And when he did, he would come in the form of an angel of slave rebellion to drown sinners in fire and blood, a right-handed avenging God, bringing justice through the sword. Yet the failure of the 1811 revolt on Louisiana's German coast illustrated what most individuals who had been stolen away to the frontier of slavery had breathed in as knowledge taught from the cradle. Redemption by revolt was impossible. So many enslaved migrants chose a different exit from hell on earth. The vast expansion of slavery in the United States happened in tandem with the emergence of evangelical Protestantism. At the time of the American Revolution, most Americans had not participated actively in organized religion. Though most were nominally Protestant, few outside of New England attended church services on a weekly or even monthly basis. But by the 1850s, half or more of all white Americans had come to participate regularly in some sort of church. The vast majority were in evangelical denominations, among which the Methodists and Baptists were the most popular choices. This evangelical Christianity was not exactly like the 21st century version. Unlike many of its descendants, it was usually not fundamentalist in theology. Yet, like its 21st century descendants, it did use an informal liturgy. And the evangelical preachers who spread across the continent, and eventually across the oceans, insisted that those who would be redeemed needed to undergo an individual conversion experience. Instead of placing their faith in a special ceremony or in some sort of inscrutable predestination, evangelical theologies made the believer's individual choice to come to God for forgiveness the key moment of salvation. Along with millions of individual choices, the growth of slavery helped to make evangelical Protestantism the hegemonic pattern of American religion. Yet the relationship between the two expansions was complex. As of 1790, 
Although Africans and their children had been slaves in North America for more than 160 years, a few enslaved people had converted to the staid, planter-denominated Anglicanism of their enslavers. Sometime around 1770, however, the first evangelical Protestant preachers, many of them exiles from theological struggles within the churches of New England, began to travel through the South. Though the planter gentry of the Chesapeake persecuted these new light ministers, other Virginians and Carolinians flocked to their revival meetings. Many enslaved people were at those gatherings. Their presence often galvanized the already emotional new light revivals into something electric. Enslaved people born in Africa, still in the late 1700s a significant percentage of Chesapeake slaves, came from a part of the world where it was common for God's to throw people on the ground, to breathe in through them, to ride worshippers' spirits and remake their lives. These new converts demonstrated the same intensity of conversion, and their fervor was catching. White converts modeled their conversions on enslaved people's behavior, learning that shouting and singing were appropriate responses to the breath of the divine. Some who expected to scoff with amusement at slave preachers' sermons found themselves lying on the ground, soaked in sweat, not quite sure what had happened. Evangelical church communities adopted enslaved men and women as spiritual brothers and sisters, even as experts and guides. After the Revolution, Thomas Jefferson and James Madison framed the Virginia Statute on Religious Freedom, the law that did away with all established churches and served as the intellectual foundation for the First Amendment. God Almighty hath created the mind of man free, began the two slave owners, and so man's government was not to impose any specific religious dogma on its citizens. But white evangelicals, prime beneficiaries of the disestablishment of the state churches that had characterized most of the pre-revolutionary colonies, increasingly concluded that God Almighty was just fine with keeping the bodies of some men and women unfree. Many of the early white Baptists in Virginia had moved to Kentucky to escape religious persecution. But those same people, charged Kentucky Baptist minister David Barrow, saw no sin in separating husband and wife. Indeed, they did so without the least apparent signs of fellow feeling. William Thompson, enslaved in Virginia, remembered how the hypocrisy of Christian enslavers had spoiled his taste for evangelical religion. I went to meeting on a Sunday after I had seen the gang chained, but the preaching did me no good. In Virginia, before the beginning of the forced migrations west, one quarter of all Methodists had been black. In Kentucky, only 10% were. On Sundays at Congaree, where Charles Ball lived in South Carolina, an enslaved migrant from Virginia named Jacob led religious meetings but most of Wade Hampton's captives preferred to spend the Sabbath raiding orchards for fruit to supplement their limited diets. And when Betsy Madison, a Virginia woman transported to Natchez in the 1790s, tried to spread her version of the faith, cotton planters tried to stop her from preaching. As Ball noted, enslavers feared that slaves may imbibe with the morality the notions of equality and liberty contained in the gospel. Yet the power of African-influenced spiritual practices was too useful for white preachers to resist the temptation to borrow. 
African-American participation on the frontier would thus ultimately reshape the religious dynamic of the entire United States. In the summers of 1800 and 1801, Presbyterian, Methodist, and Baptist ministers in the bluegrass region of Kentucky led a series of dramatic revivals. Thousands of free white and enslaved black settlers fell on church floors or wandered around shouting and jumping and praising God. They spilled out of the doors until the ministers decided to move their services outside. At the Cane Ridge meeting in August 1801, 10,000 attendees exploded into seven days of mass conversions accompanied by fainting, ecstatic dance, visions, and unconsciousness. Soon, similar revivals broke out across slavery's frontier, dramatically increasing church membership in all denominations. Critics scoffed. Some came to be at the camp meeting, and some perhaps to get good eating, rhymed a skeptical attendee. And as the preacher's tempo mounted, the altar soon was filled with lasses. Some kicked so high they showed their ass. Enslavers' migrants' influence also began to gall some observers. From the blacks' quarter of revival camps, complained Methodist John Watson, came Saturday night music turned to religious purpose, extemporaneous verses sung in the merry chorus manner of the southern husking frolic method. Singers stomped rhythms, the steps of actual Negro dancing. We cannot countenance or tolerate such gross perversions of true religion. As mass revival and emotional individual conversion on the frontier reverberated back east, one could argue that enslaved migrants' influence was expanding too. Especially after the Cane Creek revivals, a long-lasting nationwide boom of evangelical conversion transformed the American religious landscape. From zero in 1770, the number of Methodists in the United States climbed to a quarter million by 1820 and doubled in the next decade. From 1790 to 1820, the number of Baptist churches exploded from 500 to 2,500. In some ways, the process initiated by this evangelical takeoff continued all the way into the 21st century. Continuously seeking new adherents, often by utilizing the most modern tools of marketing to spread their message, Evangelicals have inhabited a process of constant transformation. True believers' competing claims have led to constant denominational splintering among evangelicals, with each group typically insisting that it possessed a truer fundamentalism than any other and that it was rebuilding the primitive church of Jesus' first followers. By the early 21st century, believers around the world had, in this process of creative destruction, created more than 30,000 Protestant denominations, most of which were born in the United States. Evangelical Protestantism claimed almost as many adherents worldwide as Catholicism or Islam. A young tradition, created in large part on slavery's frontier out of elements that included a healthy dose of West African religious practices, has become one of the most influential cultural exports in world history. Back to the early 19th century, however, and to an encounter between a white man and Pompey, a black Methodist preacher in Mississippi. Why, asked the white man, did the enslaved man sing hymns all day? It makes my soul so happy, Pompey responded. You simpleton, replied the white man. A Negro has no soul. 
New evangelical denominations have always drawn converts from the poor and the excluded, as in early 21st century Brazil, for instance, because emotional conversion experiences and informal participatory services treat disempowered people as if they have souls equal in value to those of the powerful. Yet one of the fracture lines along which evangelical Protestant denominations have split has been the question of whether believers like Pompey should challenge structures of worldly power. The perfectionist evangelicals who began to create and support moral reform movements in the North after 1830, including the new abolitionism, insisted that Jesus' instruction, Feed My Sheep, required believers to improve their society and protect the weak from the sins of the strong. In the slave society, however, official theology's social prescription was slowly bent to a different frame. Over the first half of the 19th century, as conversion experiences and church-going became the expected thing for proper white citizens, most Christianized enslavers abandoned the claim that African Americans had no souls to be saved. Thus, they had to consider the dreadful responsibility, as a Methodist minister told Natchez Whites, that they would incur if they prevented the Negroes from hearing the message sent by our gracious Creator to the whole family of the human race. From 1800 to 1820s, mixed black and white frontier congregations emerged, and they welcomed new African-American members. When Adam, a black brother, joined Louisville Baptist Church in Mississippi, all the members, white and black, greeted him with the right hand of fellowship. As churches multiplied, more enslaved people could avoid worshiping with their masters on the Sabbath. However sable their hue and degraded their condition in life, a group of Mississippi Baptist preachers reminded their fellow enslavers, enslaved African Americans possess rational and immortal souls. Yet the pull of slavery distorted white evangelicals' theology, and by the 1820s, whites in biracial churches were deleting rituals that recognized recently joined African Americans as brother and sister. After the Missouri crisis, touchy enslavers claimed that a Christian paternalistic slavery would counter criticism of the South. Along with neutralizing the bad odor of the whipping machine, ministers writing in new denominational magazines insisted that conversion to white authenticated Christianity would not infect enslaved people with the idea that Jesus came to set the captives free. Instead, they generated a tame theology that was in many ways the Calvinist opposite of the early slave frontier revivals, with their emphasis on a believer's decision to ask for forgiveness and faith. Even as famous Northern evangelical Charles Finney told tens of thousands of converts in 1820s Erie Canal boomtowns that they could choose to turn to God for salvation, Mississippi Baptists were trying to ensure that the enslaved believed that nothing important in heaven or on earth was up to their choosing. God himself, the Baptist State Convention announced, had established their bondage. However dark, mysterious, and unpleasant these dispensations may appear to you, we have no doubt they are founded in wisdom and goodness. The great God above has made you for the benefit of the white man, who is your lawmaker and lawgiver, a Kentucky captor preached to his human property whom he had gathered in his yard for Sunday morning sermon. Make it plain, religion of white supremacy. Uh, with that, uh, we will get to folks who have comments on the second audio segment. We'll pick up there next week. We are still in Chapter 6. 
Uh, if you would like to participate, the number to dial is 641-715-3640. And the code is 564-943-POUND. Press star 6 if you would like to participate. Uh, all the folks who dialed in with a hand up, uh, lines should be open. Mr. Demery Four, retired firefighter, Roz uh, Thomas in New York. Uh, if y'all have comments you want to share, feel free. Yes, ma'am, be heard. Yes, sir. Okay. Uh, I'd like to start with... Um, David Walker, you know, the, uh, I believe that, that was Walker, the black man that started his own store and uh, started, uh, I guess, a printing shop, and he was issuing those pamphlets. And it seems, you know, that the whites were spreading their propaganda into the minds of the enslaved blacks that that was the order of things that, you know, uh, they should be in that particular uh, situation. But, you know, when he started distributing those uh, leaflets, I think he was hoping for uh, a revolution or change of mind from the majority of blacks that was enslaved. And that's noteworthy. And you know, the influence of that religion had upon the early states. Um, it's just it just, you know, speaks to the uh the damage that was done to black people, you know, through this so-called organized religion. Because I appreciated the truth that they, that the book brought forth about some of the so-called founding fathers like Thomas Jefferson not believing that black people had souls. You know, you would think that uh, the way they painted him in history about, uh, you know, his genius and all of this, that uh, someone would tell themselves something until they uh, believed it was true themselves. And then uh, we get to the, you know, religious part, you know, like you said, the religion of white supremacy trumps all other forms of religion, whether you want to call it Protestant, Methodist, or whatever. You know, it's it's funny, not funny, but they told themselves, they interpreted how uh, God was viewing things. I think that they did that because that's the way they wanted uh, reality to be. 
And so they just, uh, you know, came to the conclusion that that God wanted it like this. So I'll mute my line. Let somebody else get a chance. Thanks. You are a little low, uh, Thomas, in New York. If you could speak up. Yes, sir. Yes, could I be heard? Yes, sir. Oh man, the religion of man, that was um. Now I, I was listening. I don't have the book now. Just tell me if I'm going along the right path here. The slaves was taught Christianity by the slave masters, and they kept practicing it after, you know, during slavery and after. And the whites didn't didn't even practice it anymore. Then they copied what the blacks were doing and called it evangelism. Am I right or wrong? Hmm. Say that again. Seems to me like the white weren't practicing this uh, Christianity that much. And they saw how the blacks were practicing it, and they copied it, and they called it evangelicalism. But did I kind of get that wrong? That's loosely. That's pretty much it. Loosely. Yeah. Oh, man. It's like, okay. You know, I find Christians are very difficult. Um, I think that they have a they have a very strong um, addiction to white validation just for practicing that religion. And I like how he broke it down later, where you know how they they pretty much came with the ideology. I always say is, uh, "You're the slave master, and I'm the slave, and pray to the same God." Now. I'm praying that I get to heaven, and you're praying you get to heaven. Now, you could be forgiven for beating me to death, <laughs> but we both still, I mean, it's just so backwards, and it, I think it just pointed it, and it seems as though, like, unlike what I've always been told, it seems like we did that to ourselves, which was, like, telling to me, like, we, we stuck with it that hard. I mean, that was something we were supposed to leave on the planet and, um, you know, that that, that was uh, excellent. I mean, because I never heard it from that perspective. I'm going to have to listen to that whole part again. I'll mute my line for now. Thank you. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Uh, yes. Um, I was looking at the section about the, uh, the, the newspaper writer, the so-called anti-racist Lundy. And his cohort, um, I think his name is uh, William Garrison, and it kind of made me think um, because they seem to have ruffled a few white people's feathers um, with the writing that they wrote, and it just made me think a lot about Tim Wise and all these white people. Like, they've been doing this for generations, like writing books about racism and white supremacy and doing absolutely nothing to actually stop the system and um, making buku bucks again because he sold quite a, bit of, quite a few um newspapers, um, and then his, his friend Garrison, who they said was built like a linebacker, um, after he got out of prison, because the other white guy um, that he basically spoke about <laughs> um, didn't want to take him on physically like uh, Lundy was taken on by the guy he wrote about. So after he went to jail, he moved up north, and they created his own paper. So it seemed like a way of life, like this was something they were passing on from back then, and um, Tim Wise and all of, all of his ilk are pretty much um, in the lineage of these so-called anti-racists who've done absolutely nothing 
to uh, work to end the system of racism and white supremacy. And um, I found it telling on page 194 that a section that said on January 9, 1827, Boston Wolf Hope approached Lindy in, as as the editor was locking up his print shop for the day, Wolfolk drew, drew, excuse me, threw the Quaker to the ground and beat him severely, then walked away. Lundy pressed assault charges against Wolfolk, but when the case came to trial, the judge declared the editor a deserved chastisement. He fined the slave trader one whole dollar and then gave a speech praising the slave trade's economic benefits to the state of Maryland. He added that Wolfolk also had removed a m- many me a great many rogues and vagabonds who were a nuisance in the state. The government of Louisiana would have been unhappy to hear that the Maryland justice system encouraged the transportation of dangerous slaves to New Orleans. And this really speaks to what um, we've talked about on the show, especially you brought this up quite a bit, that white people will let other white people know when they are breaking the code, and it can be anything from a severe beating to fatality, um, all depending on who is the dominant one as far as which version of white supremacy is going to be the order of the day in a given area. So I found that very telling, um, just that, that beatdown that he took in, um, just for writing or basically going against what they wanted to be the status quo. Um, I found David Walker just a phenomenal, just his life was a phenomenal, phenomenal example of black self-respect. Um, that is a really, really strong ancestor who stood his ground and I give him enough, enough respect. Um, I found it interesting that his death was so uh, misunderstood and no one really knew what happened to him. I would venture to say that white people probably did poison him. It kind of reminded me of what happened to um, Dr. Khalid Muhammad and how uh, uh, Steve Copley brought up how he died under such questionable circumstances in a great video he put out years ago. Um, also, I found it telling, too, on page 197, there's a brief section that says, uh, state legislatures plan to ban the teaching of literacy to enslaved African Americans. Instruction in basic mathematics would remain legal, however, so that black drivers would be able to subtract the number of pounds of cotton picked from the quota, thus deriving the requisite number of lashes to deliver. So the only time that blacks were fit to be educated was in the maintenance and perpetuation and refinement of the system of white supremacy and the brutality of other black people, which again helps to anesthetize black people to the suffering of other blacks due to the fact that we were used as these tools of their so-called right hand. Um, then there was a brief section on page 201 that said, uh, when Betsy Madison, a Virginia woman transported to Natchez in the 1790s, tried to spread her version of the faith, cotton planters tried to stop her from preaching. As Ball noted, enslavers feared that slaves would imbibe with morality the notions of equality and liberty contained in the gospel. Again, um, they were afraid that if blacks learned to read, they would do exactly what Nat Turner did, which was to turn a racist white supremacist, basically homosexual and bisexual religion, into a tool of African liberation, and that was a no-no. So I just found it very telling from the very beginning. The main reason to stop us from reading had a lot to do with religion and the transformative effect that the aspects or the parts of the Bible that spoke to um, to human equality and just just the liberation theology, which is exactly what uh, Nat Turner did, was he made Christianity or, or, or actually made a variation of it into his own liberation theology, which he used to set to freeing himself by any means necessary. And um, I found the other section very telling too when uh, the preacher Pompey was was singing, and the white man had asked him why did the enslaved man sing hymns all day? And he said, it makes his soul happy. And uh, then uh, Pompey responded, you simple, um, 
The white man responded, you simpleton, a Negro has no soul. I found that as a real great example of whites uh, projecting again um, their belief that blacks had no soul. And if you look at all the stuff that we've read in this book alone, and you can even go back to um, Ben Tillman, the book on Ben Tillman, that white people had no soul, which is why they were able to do exactly what they did um, to us and have been doing to us for so long. And um, also, I found the very last section, again, about the religion of white supremacy. Um, wow. <laughs> Mississippi Baptists were trying to ensure that the enslaved believed that nothing important in heaven or on earth was up to their choosing. God himself, the Baptist State Convention announced, had established their bondage. However dark, mysterious, and unpleasant these dispensations may appear to you, we have no doubt that they are founded in wisdom and goodness. The great God above has made you for the benefit of the white man, who is your lawmaker and lawgiver, a Kentucky Catholic priest to his human property, whom he gathered in his yard for his Sunday morning sermon. Again, the religion of white supremacy has to be infused with the worship of the white man. That is a deep uh, Dr. Wilson moment. I am so sad that we lost her because um, I would love to just get her take on that because it really speaks to, to a lot of what she's discussed over the years. And um, I, I'll meet my line there, but God rest the soul of Dr. Wilson. Um, this, this was just a telling section. Thank you. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Um, I just want to say um, good evening, everyone. Um, I only wanted to touch on the last part about religion. Um, I was actually studying to be a pastor, so I know most times I've called and most people know my opinion, but I went from studying to be a pastor to actually becoming an atheist of all religions. So I don't believe in God in any religion. And I only wanted to say, when most people ask me, well, Joe, well, how did you become an atheist? I always ask one question. Do you really know and understand the history of religion? And I think it goes to, I think that's what you said, or one of the callers said, if black people really educated themselves about white supremacy, maybe their whole mindset would change. And that's kind of how I, and it's kind of how I went to becoming an atheist, because the more and more I started studying the history of Catholicism and Islam and, and Judaism, I was like, why am I right mind when I follow this? I was like, it makes no sense to me. So for me, I'm like, either you're ignorant of history or you're just crazy. But this is a good book, and that's just all I wanted to share. I'll go ahead and mute my line. Uh, anybody we have not heard from uh, who had comments, retired uh, firefighter, um, let's see, anybody else on the line we haven't heard from yet have comments they wanted to make sure they get in? All right. Soon folks uh, are satisfied for the moment. Uh, quick things that stood out. Uh, Shay, uh, for Dr. Welsing, uh, recognizing her, her spirit. Um, <clears throat> I will double down on what I said before, uh, the mandatory inclusion uh, of these white people that are supposed to be good whites who were against slavery. Uh, it seems like you're obligated to do that. I said that uh, during the last segment when he brought up Granville uh, Sharp, uh, to insert these folks to make it, you know, in, at least in my view, this is done where it really obscures that it is total white collective. They are on board with 
practicing, benefiting from, dedicated to the system of white supremacy. And I think a lot of times uh, when you include these folks, whether it's William Lloyd Garrison or Granville Sharps, I already said, uh, in this section it was more Rachel uh, Leonard and some of these other folks that that really uh, confounds us and, and they end up disproportionately focusing on these people who he states, uh, in my view, accurately in the 1820s, a few scattered white dissidents were trying to raise the issue of slavery, but these white folks were in practical terms almost as powerless as white folks could be. I think that should be underlined, bold face print every time. And uh, in my view, it should be added just because they oppose quote unquote slavery does not mean that they oppose racism, white supremacy. And that gets brought out uh, repeatedly, both in this text uh, and elsewhere. Um, let's see. I thought, I thought it was really important when they talked about the American colonization society that a lot of black people at that time were opposed to this organization and correctly, in my view, thought it was racist. Uh, but they said specifically that a lot of white people did not like the idea of manumission or any sort of escape because this was siphoning away the potential population of enslaved black people. Like you had a lot of whites who were even opposed to the idea of sending Negroes elsewhere. Like, wait a minute, you know, we could, we could, these are folks that we could steal uh, and have them, you know, picking cotton or whatever it says the escape of any African-American, including the already free shrank the potential market in stolen humans. Uh, just in my mind, that is, you have been totally uh, commodified, enslaved. I totally, everything about you, you're not a human being. You just represent to me a cotton picker, a potential money for me, a potential servant uh, in the system of white supremacy. Uh, you already touched on, I thought it was great, uh, Mr. Lundy being beaten. Uh, you will be reprimanded. White people will let you know when you've made an error in the system of white supremacy. Uh, I, this section in particular, I thought it was significant. I think it's come up repeatedly about whether white people can be in fear. I think Dr. Welsing's theory of white genetic annihilation is, in my mind, it is very logical uh, and valid in terms of some of the unconscious uh, fears and anxieties that whites have about dark people, melanated folks. But I also think white people know if you are mistreating people, eventually they're going to figure that out and respond appropriately. David Walker. Denmark Bessie, Nat Turner, da 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 da. I mean, you can just ride that. Colin Ferguson, you want to come all the way up to uh, present day, Lavelle Mixon. They know this is bound to happen. Uh, in my mind, it is logical uh, to have some sort of anxiety, fear, whatever term you want to put on it, that these people eventually are going to respond correctly and, you know, be looking to come upside my head. Maybe not all at one time, but. This certainly could happen, and I think white people have that fear, I think even today, that we know what we've done to you, and it could kick in at some point. Black self-respect and a, an accurate understanding of how they should be relating to us, racist man, racist woman, racist child. Just in that section where it says there in 1822, he saw panicked whites torture and execute over 30 enslaved men who had allegedly conspired with a free black man named Denmark Vesey to launch a slave revolt. And you see that pattern play out over and over again. I was just incorrect. We stopped about five pages before Nat Turner pops up in chapter six. But you see that pop up over and over again. I think we already heard that in response to the uh, Haitian Revolution and the failed revolt in Louisiana in 1811 uh, in terms of white people having that fear, that anxiety that, man, these niggers could get their act together and make trouble for us. We got to be on our P's and Q's constantly on guard. I think that even plays out with these shootings today of black people and the way that whites respond to things like quote unquote black lives matter and what have you. I'm uh, moving forward. 
Yeah, David Walker, great information uh, on Mr. Walker. Also wanted to get in William Lloyd Garrison. When PBS did that big series, I think this was uh, back in 2000. 13 when they bid uh did the big session or 2012 excuse me they did that big series i think it was like three parts on the abolitionists in this area of the world they were focusing on uh predominantly white men white women although they did have a, a pretty lengthy section on frederick Douglass as well but i thought it was important uh william lloyd garrison he got upset when Frederick Douglass went out, black journalist, he went out to start his own paper, and he was upset about this. Like, oh, man, this was supposed to be my nigger. He was supposed to be working for me and helping my paper and, and make money. When he went out to work for himself, Garrison starts spreading all these rumors that uh, Douglass is shacked up with this white woman. Uh, and, and, I mean, this climate, and I would argue even now, 21st century, uh, that, you know, could be a death sentence uh, saying that sort of thing. I just thought that was important to include that these are not, in my mind, noble white folk. Uh, it also kind of rubbed me the wrong way. Um, but I, I don't even want to give metaphor. It, it bothered me hearing that William Lloyd Garrison was getting a good bit of his funding from uh, black people who were uh, either, I guess, donating or subscribed to his uh, readership. I, yeah, I think a lot of comparisons have been made to Tim Wise and what have you, where a lot of black people buy his work, Dr. Peggy McIntosh, Jane Elliott, so lots of these uh, good whites who, who write these type of books and what have you, but that definitely stood out to me as uh, incorrect, even though I can definitely understand in the context. I mean, if you're looking for anything to try to give you some support and try to help you out of your situation, but uh, mm. uh, let's see, moving forward. Uh, the portion where he says in uh, evangelical church communities adopted enslaved men and women as spiritual brothers and sisters even as experts and guides i definitely think the latter portion in terms of stealing uh and taking from practices of black people and seeing how they can apply that to their own white supremacist culture totally accurate i see that you know all throughout the whole history of white supremacy but accepting it's, i mean even just the words how are you enslaved, but I'm accepting you as an ego? I mean, that's total nonsense. Uh, in my, well, I can't even say nonsense. That's just the practice of racism, white supremacy, in my view, in, in terms of the author even writing uh, a sentence like that, as he's already given that that is simply hogwash, where you have all these people writing and saying that this is some sort of familial thing. I wouldn't care if they opened a billion churches uh, where white people and black people are going to church together. If you are enslaved, you've already been marked. Sure, we can sit in the same pew and clap and roll around on the floor and all that, but at the end of the day, you're going back to pick cotton and I'm going back to do whatever I'm doing with it. That means I'm uh, thinking of new whipping machines or shackles to sell you in or whatever else I'm doing in my participation in the torture, systemic torture and terrorism against you and all blacks. But that stuck out to me as well. Um, yeah, I thought he broke that down really well. The whole religion of white supremacy and how they just manipulated and refined it to work to suit their system that we don't have to exclude our negras from the christian practices evangelical practices we just have to tailor it refine it so that it will strengthen our system and their thinking uh, as i said five pages later we will get nat turner another illustration of what can happen when this goes wrong uh but i thought that was great where uh, we ended at religion of white supremacy uh any other comments folks want to make sure they get in we have about five minutes uh, that stood out anything else you want to make note of or questions
Everyone content? Nothing else stood out that they want to make sure they uh, mentioned? Right on. Hey, Gus. Oh, um, you know, the, the only thing that I wanted to say, Gus, is, is I've yet to understand and um, what what was the purpose of believing in God if nothing changed. And maybe one of the callers or someone can answer that question for me because I've yet to come, I've yet to understand, you know, when they introduced slavery to, um, I mean, when they introduced religion to the slaves, I understand to keep them docile, to make them passive aggressive and turn the other cheek. But I've yet to understand what's the purpose of blacks continuing to believe in, or Africans, or anybody still to believe in God when, your um, nothing changed for you. Still enslaved, the beating happened, the rapes happened. You were still demeaned. Like nothing changed. So I've yet to understand the purpose of believing in God and how that improved our situation. Or, or you know, is that so? Maybe somebody else can help me understand that point. That was, my line. That was in the book. That was uh, one of the uh, enslaved black people said that. For me, it's on page four forty one in chapter six where he says. Uh, uh, oh, I just lost it. It was right. There it is. Uh, William Thompson, enslaved in Virginia, remembered the hypocrisy of Christian enslavers, uh, had spoiled his taste for evangelical religion. I went to a meeting on a Sunday on a Sunday after I had seen the gang change, but the preaching did me no good. Uh, it seems like they were a good uh, number. And we talked about this before. Uh, is God a white racist? We had uh, name is escaping me for the moment. It'll come back to me. Um, William R. Jones on the program 2009, but there was there was a lot of that sentiment among black people. That's just been something that, in my view, is another act of racism where that's been conveniently buried and obscured. But you had a lot of black people who had that exact sentiment. Uh, what is the good of all of this if I'm just going to be, you know, beaten and tortured to go out here and work for the rest of my life and have everybody that I care about and love also beaten, stolen, raped, pillaged uh, at will? Uh, but that there were a lot of black people who had that exact sentiment, Joe, in D.C., uh, Thomas in New York, were you going to respond? So, yeah, um, in response to what Joe and D.C. just said, you know, I think that black people, we always had a form of worship that um, led us to meet in a congregation. And, you know, even though this is Christianity, you know, it, it allowed us to get out of the stables and, and meet up and sing songs and, and be together. I think that was what they got out of it. Um, more so than the religion, and the religion kicked in later. Um, my thought was, was the part where the whites had said that evangelicalism was the purest form of Christianity. It was the one that was probably practiced by Jesus. But yet they still call themselves Protestants. And what, I mean, it just shows how backwards and how arrogant these white people are in particular because the whole purpose of a Protestant was they was protesting against Catholics. So it was just another form of Catholic, you know, um, uh, Martin Luther and others were protesting against the Catholic wars. So they created Protestantism, protest. And um, for these people to be practicing a, a, another form of Catholicism, Catholicism, and to sit there and think they have the most purest form, like, man, they're just so ignorant. Or, I mean, they, 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 or they just don't keep. They'll just write themselves in the history wherever. 
Come on, let me get my line with it. Uh, I heard two people. I'm not sure. Uh, was that retired firefighter and Roz, or who's? I don't know who the two people were. The, the other person can go first. Go ahead. Oh, I can go first. You said. Yes, sir. Okay. Thank you very much, sir. Um, I was going to say, I believe that religion for African people held the same sway as far as the power of religion. I, I think Haiti's the best example of what religion did for African people as far as uh, fighting for liberation, our own liberation. And basically it was the worship of our ancestors and our own deities that facilitated that. Um, I believe that Dr. Ben probably made the most poignant statement in regards to uh, black people embracing Christianity, Islam, or Judaism. He said, uh, no other people have ever worshipped their enslavers God or gods and ever freed themselves from slavery. Why should American Africans be any different? And basically for white people getting us to embrace Christianity as wholeheartedly as we did due to the, uh, spiritual bondage, because as Thomas uh, New York said earlier, we're continuing to worship the God, the God of our enemies, on whom they worship to keep us enslaved. So for those American Africans who choose to continue to practice any of those Western religions, I agree with you emphatically. They're in a state of spiritual bondage. For those who choose to go back to an African religion or to become atheists as you did, that's a form of liberation as far as freeing yourself from the tethers of spiritual bondage and slavery. And I'll meet my line there. Yes, I just wanted to say, uh, say briefly that... Uh, uh, once again, white people are not gonna white people are not gonna help us uh, with uh, solving this problem. Uh, basically, uh, it's more of the same, more of the same. Uh, what is understood as their religious practices. Uh, Mr. Fuller helps us all by stating the uh, the the clearest meaning that I know of to the word religion: strong belief backed up by action. So even with the codification under the people activity that they use, uh, that white people use uh, in religion, it's just more of the same. It's more of the same of codification to whereas uh, uh, all power becomes a noun instead of an, instead of an adjective. <laughs> and, and, and because they already know that, that noun that they speak of and they want you to understand is them. You know, I, I mean, unless I'm talking crazy, you know. So they, I mean, fine. They they let you in the door. Sometimes they just don't want to see niggas at all. So they keep. In some cases, they keep you out of the door. You know. Uh, okay, I, I've I've seen him during the week. I don't want to see him on Sunday. You know. So they keep you out of the door. Some some don't mind. You know, every day of the week. You know, fine. Come on in. You know. I mean, we're not worried about what you're gonna get out of it. Even the term God. The G-O-D itself, you know, what, what the heck? They're talking about themselves, the Lord. And then you see some people who are still alive today who, who are, who are, who are uh, identified as Lord and put in the last name or whatever it is, you know. So uh, either I'm talking crazy or, or, or I mean, that's the sense I make out of it, you know, as far as they're concerned. And they, they, they but through study, they have fragmented, they've taken some of the fragments from uh, 
uh, our ancient understanding of of all power and mixed it in there to their their, their deadly concoction, in my opinion. And uh, so uh, that's how I understand things. Anytime the subject comes up, as far as from the standpoint of where white people have something to do with it, it ain't gonna it ain't gonna be right for us at all. Thank you. Right on, right on. We did our three. We will wrap up there and pick up next week, Chapter 6. We are halfway done uh, with the book, so we should have, uh, presumably, uh, about six of these left before we wrap things up and move on to the next text. Uh, Quickly, uh, in the vein of what I just said, that there's a lot uh, in terms of black people questioning, scrutinizing, even ridiculing uh, Christianity and the way that the religion of white supremacy has been weaponized against us. Uh, This is from 1827, right in the years that this chapter deals with. 1827, Reverend Nathaniel Paul Halls, uh, from his sermon, The End of Slavery in New York, uh, where he wrote, said, Did I believe that it would always continue and that man to the end of time would be permitted with impunity to usurp the same undue authority over his fellow? I would disallow any allegiance or obligation I was under to my fellow creatures or any submission that I owed to the laws of my country. I would deny the superintending power of divine providence in the affairs of of his life, I would ridicule the religion of the savior of the world and treat as the worst of men the ministers of an everlasting gospel. I would consider my Bible as a book of false and delusive fables and commit it to the flames. Nay, I would still go farther. I would at once confess myself an atheist and deny the existence of a holy God. This is black male, Reverend Nathaniel Paul Hall's uh, his speech written out the end of slavery in New York from 1827. And there's, like I said, lots of that, lots and lots and lots. Uh, Dr. William R. Jones, the late, uh, he mentioned uh, more documents uh, when he was on the program in 2009 where you can get more of that information. Uh, with that, we'll be here tomorrow. Compensatory call in, uh, share views uh, on what transpired over the last seven days, workplace racism as well. Normal broadcast time, 9 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Pacific. Uh, we will also be here this Sunday, third Sunday of the month, uh, Global Sunday Talk on Racism. Uh, we should have folks uh, chiming in from Norway, uh, London. Uh, I think even some of our folks in South Africa uh, should be joining us uh, this Sunday morning. So uh, I've been saying for a long time, we have lots of folks who are outside the states who listen in. So tune in Sunday uh, early. Sunday, uh, it's 12 noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific. Uh, We should be here Sunday morning for the Global Sunday Talk on Racism. Looking forward, uh, folks who are up uh, early on the Sabbath. Uh, With that, thanks everyone for tuning in. Hope it has been constructive. If you have notes that you want to share down the road, uh, feel free to drop an email until justice at gmail.com and we can include your commentary next week uh, as we continue to read the text uh, definitely looking forward uh, we are fundraising for 2016 invest if you think the program is constructive racism hyphen notes dot blogspot dot com racism hyphen notes dot blogspot dot com listener supported counter racist Radio. Uh, you'll see the PayPal button in the top right corner. If you're not into PayPal, just
drop us an email. We'll get you a physical mailing address. Huge thanks to all the folks who have invested and kept us rolling for nearly seven years. Hope the program has been and continues to be worthy of your time and energy. Uh, with that, thanks everyone for participating. Uh, hope you have a safe constructive Friday evening. Uh, Again, sobriety would be best under conditions of white terrorism. I do not encourage being around intoxicated whites uh, or intoxicated non-white people for that matter. The environment is just too rife with a lot of easily avoidable conflict. We already have enough problems as black people under a system of white terrorism. Uh, If you're going to be out and about, driver, passenger, pedestrian, You definitely do not want to be under the influence uh, in any uh, of those different situations. Uh, You never know when you're going to bump into a Daniel Holtzclaw, Darren Wilson. Uh, We want to be lucid, clear thinking so we can make the best possible decisions to take care of ourselves, other people that we care about and might be responsible for. That's it. Uh, Creator, we ask that you help us demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with other black people. Remind us it is an exercise in black mental health to refrain from squabbling and name calling other black people. Help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. Help us remain patient with ourselves. It has been time. Replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Cows signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, What's your brother. Problem? You're a victim. Yeah. I'm a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm-hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. <laughs> with the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.